All right, Lawrence. Um, people have been complaining in the comments lately. Oh, oh, all the all the stories are the same. You're getting YouTubers telling the, someone very different today. I, I wouldn't even go down that route. I'm I'm just going to say you messaged me out of nowhere and said, I have the best guest we're going to get. I don't care about the comments. I care about this is actually going to be a really interesting mm-hmm. chat. Fair enough. We've yeah. got the man known as Nick Yaris, the author of The Fear, the Fear of 13, star of the Netflix documentary Fear of 13. If we did a thousand of these, doc- like a thousand of these podcasts, we would probably never get a man who's had a life like this man. I hope I hope he never do. <laughs> yeah. For their sake, no, yeah. we hope not. No, Welcome. It's a, it's a great down. honor. And uh, I really am grateful that I was uh, reached out to through Twitter. And when I found out about the True Charity Podcast, I thought, wow, here's a great opportunity to meet just normal people and do a podcast. I, don't, I didn't want my um, entry into this to be on a high polished stage and stuff. I like it that, like he said, he said, I'm just learning all of this and I love it. And you're right. Um, maybe there was good criticism that came out of it to make you expand your guest list. And that's always a good thing because the listeners rule, right? So I get that. Yeah. So my own story, if you don't know it, uh, my name is Nick Harris. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm 55 years old as I sit here, and I spent 23 years on death row for a rape and murder I didn't commit. At the age of 20, I was arrested in the Philadelphia area where I lived, and I was driving a stolen car, and I was high on drugs. My life had had all been blown apart because in my childhood, I had a predator pick on me and uh, single me out and beat my head in with a rock, and he left me with a brain disorder that I masked with narcotics and drugs like a lot of people do. So when I was arrested in 1981, the officer stopped me for a traffic violation and I didn't respond and he got really angry and he was a big man. He ripped the car door open and he uh, ripped me out of the car and he put his forearm on my throat and started pushing back and all that. And I just started reacting. So I started fighting with him and then he pulled out his stick. I took the stick out of his hand. He pulled out the, the pistol and that's when I grabbed his wrist and the gun went off. And... In that moment, my whole life changed because the officer made up a big story about me saying that I tried to murder him. Wasn't it kidnapping? Yeah, kidnapping, uh, attempted murder of a police officer, possession of his firearm Mm. and everything. And they took me into jail and I couldn't believe it. I'm 20 years old. It's four days before Christmas. And like in a very quiet manner, they said, now you know you're facing life in prison, so just... Be quiet. Have, had you had any convictions before that? Because I know in America they've got a, a three strikes system. Because you said that you'd had problems with drugs. Yeah, that and, all came later. No, yeah. I was only twenty. I was only twenty years old, and the only thing I'd have been convicted of before that was auto theft. Right. So, so that's what I was—a car thief, and mm-hmm. I had no violence on my records as an adult and all that. And it didn't matter because this officer, Benny Wright. Even though six years after this incident, he would be fired from the police force and he would die as an alcoholic and misery from his own life of working with a criminal gang in the Chester area. At the time, they believed him. Mm-hmm. You know, he had no bad record. So they thought, you know, officer tells you I got this guy. He tried to kill me, put him in jail. And I went into the Delaware County prison and I fell apart. And I, I stupidly did the worst mistake of my life. I was in a prison cell facing life imprisonment and I read a newspaper article about a murder that I had nothing to do with 
and I tried to pick out a guy that was dead or I thought was dead from a drug overdose and barter my freedom. And after three days, the police came back to me. You were going to pin a murder on a guy you thought was was dead, dead. basically. I mean, to be fair, that guy had tried to murder you himself. Yeah, had he? Yeah, yeah, man, he, 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 him and two of his friends beat me in the head with a three fifty seven pistol and then rubbed me up in a rug and were going to murder me. And uh, I was I was enraged with this man's uh, attack on me. But when I found out he was dead, I thought, oh. Uh, and then when I, I was thinking, who could I blame it on? I don't know anything about the crime. I thought of him. Hmm. And so I stupidly picked out his name, and here it was, he didn't even die and he got himself off drugs, and he told the police, look, I was at work that day, so Nick's telling you a lie. The police came back to me and said, well, you did the murder. And I started fighting with him and saying, no, no, that's not true. And they said, well, that's okay. Somebody already said that you confessed to him. And I was like, what? So they put a prisoner in a cell next to me for one night who burglarized the prosecutor's home, and he said I confessed to him. Mm, Jesus. Yeah, man. They made him do it, too, because they told him, look, the guy's got an alibi. He's, he's at home with his parents. <coughs> we know that he can prove where he was during the murder, so you got to go in and say that he's saying his parents lied. It's amazing that so many people in the story are trying to pin a murder on someone, someone else. and nobody's involved in that murder. I because the, 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 I think uh, the thing is, if you haven't already seen it, then go and watch The Fear of 13 on uh, oh, Netflix. If you haven't got Netflix... I'm so sorry, um, but, but but the point is the point is as well. It's, it's put locker. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> if, if you got a VPN, go for it. Um, the, the, the point the point is with it is that I don't want to give away too much of the story that is in this because I also think uh, you know obviously I want to tell your story, but it's so beautifully constructed in this documentary. I think I don't want to give away some of someone what, who's look, directing. That's a great honor, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And I, I like it that we're going to try and keep it to the thumbnail. Yeah. Okay, so the basis of. My whole coming on here was I did spend 23 years on death row. At one point, I escaped. I turned myself back in after being on the FBI's most wanted list. And then I became the first man in America on death row to seek DNA testing. Mm -hmm. Took 15 years. I got sick in prison. I nearly died of illness. So I asked to be executed. It was at that point that I was granted DNA in 2003 and set free in 2004. And that's what brought me to your door. Mm -hmm. Because after I got out... I went out and with the help of some filmmakers, I made a documentary called The Fear of 13 eight years ago. That movie took a long time to be released. I also wrote my first book at the time. It was titled uh, Seven Days to Live. It is also now titled The Fear of 13. But what I wanted to do in that film, I wanted to be aware that the story that we tell to everyone in life is really the story that we're telling to each other and ourselves more importantly. And in that way, I wanted to be able to tell my story without being on the end of a question. And I wanted to tell my story to show my development and nothing else mattered to me. You really blew me away in that documentary because for a period of time now, I'm like, is this an actor playing the guy who this is really about? It, it shocked me that someone could have been a car thief and, and come from the place that you've come and then end up in prison, teach yourself to read and write and, and, and teach yourself to speak like you speak. I mean, we've had YouTubers on here who speak for a living, very confident men, and they don't speak as well as you do pretty much. Um, that shocked me. To be honest. When you first went into prison, what kind of person were you? 
How would you describe yourself? I was hard, man. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't have any self-respect. So I was ignorant in the manner that I spoke because I, uh, I didn't have time um, for instant gratification. Mm. I had very serious problems with my mind. My head was beaten in badly, and the years of doing drugs really made me chaotic. I was quick to violence and all that. And my whole mannerism of speech came because of the beatings. Because I was in isolation, and the first two years especially, I wasn't even allowed to speak in my cell. Whenever I was tormented or physically tortured or beaten, I went into my cell, and I only had one photograph on my wall. I didn't have breasts and beaches and everything on my wall. I didn't need all that. I had one photograph of myself, and I began to speak to this one person in the most beautiful manner that I could so that they could get me out of here. I knew that the only hope I had is if I could convince that one person how much I loved them, I could survive this. So that's what I did. So I began learning the basis of language by studying every word in the dictionary so that I could use it in a proper form to speak to myself because I wasn't going home and I was going to be executed. I was going to be prepared on my execution day to have the most beautiful speech prepared. That's why I did it all. Essentially, you, what you're saying is you, you'd accepted your fate, essentially, which was to, to, to die in death row. I had 105 years in total sentences, yeah. plus the death penalty if I didn't survive that. And you even, at one point, asked to be executed early I, because you'd given up hope. And uh, one It thing wasn't that, that I gave up hope. I want to be very clear about this. In 1985, I escaped from death row. When I turned myself back in, they waited a year and a day to get me for it. Four men took me into a big white room, and they beat me with clubs for four minutes. They broke 12 of my teeth. They broke my face. This uh, detached my left retina. Beat me so badly that it took me months to recover. And from that moment on, like I had to realize this was something bigger than me. You understand that? In order for me to come back from that kind of a moment, I knew it had to be something so much bigger than me. So I just threw myself at it in this way that I had to realize no matter what was done to me, I was only I was only going to allow any of it to hurt me if I drew. And I hate to say it like it was personal. It wasn't very personal what they were doing. Crazy, ain't it? Because a lot of people sort of see it from their own perspective of feeling it from a personal perspective. Very personal. But you related it to a much wider situation in that yeah. sense. So you really restricted your ego in a big way there because a lot of people wouldn't... The hardest thing to do to yourself that. when someone is hurting you is to be nice to yourself. You ever notice that? When someone else is giving you shit and driving you into the ground, the hardest feeling in the world is to, t to tell yourself, come on, man, you're a really nice guy. You don't deserve that. And don't feel down for what they did. But that's what I did. I swear to God, I, I derived this really beautiful way of being this really encouraging person to myself while people were calling me rapist, murderer, scumbag. And I would say thank you. Because they were ignorant. What's the difference between them and somebody with mental retardation speaking to me? So I learned how to handle all this in a really cool way. You became your own guidance counselor. Yeah, of. and I educated myself so well 
that I put in perspective what they were doing to me was not who I was. Break my face, kick my face in with steel cap boots, doesn't matter. That's not who I am. That's what you think I am. Their justification every time they hurt me was that I was a rapist, scumbag murderer, and I deserved this. Well, no, sir, I did not deserve that. And no matter what you do to me, you're not going to take my kindness. I love that. And I, I, I really strive to educate myself so well, I helped two other men get off death row, even though I couldn't even help myself. And I got one man out of prison, and the bastard got out of prison and went to Florida and killed somebody. And I have to live with that, too. But I was, I was geared towards this really beautiful outpouring of believing in myself and, and growing stature in self-respect. It's the hardest thing. That that, that sort of changes prison in a sense, doesn't it? Because prison for most people is, they see it as an end or sort of a, you know, a a pause on life. Mm. It kills our spirit. It doesn't grow it. Because they're told it's supposed to kill your spirit. So why the difference for you? And do you think that changed your experience of prison? Because you still describe experiences. And in watching the documentary, one thing that struck me was it, you go through the story so quick that sometimes the laborious nature of prison, you it's, it almost feels romantic at That's times. That's why at the beginning I, sh- I try to describe the chaos of time. Yeah. Look, I can... You could lose the sun a, come up. Yeah, you could lose a decade exactly. with a blink. Yeah. But man, to get through that day. So yeah, I, I, um, I know it's crazy, but I suffered the least of my family because my parents were on the outside... And because of what Charles Catalino did, saying that I lied about my alibi, my mother was brutalized by people spitting in her face, calling her the mother of a murderer. You lied for your son and all that crap. My father kept getting fired from jobs and stuff. So I did everything I could for them. Mm-hmm. My parents came to me on my 22nd birthday and they said, Nikki, we can't do nothing for you, man. You know, you're going to have to get yourself out of this. Did they believe you, you? I was at home having dinner with my mom and dad, man. Yeah. Yeah, a bank receipt showed that I was in Philadelphia at 3.04 p.m. paying my mom's phone bill. Mm. The murder happened in 4.30, 25 miles away. I was at home with my parents, and the shopkeeper testified I was out in the snow and the rain with no coat on. I seen a a video on YouTube of you and your mother together, and she had a booklet full of document after document after document. And I thought, all right, here's a woman who's really lived through this from the other side of the jail cell. She was the saving grace, too. In the movie, remember all the evidence from the DNA was thrown away. That That shocked me. Yeah, because they were trying to murder me. Didn't shock me. (laughs) And then after after they thought all the evidence was gone, my mom woke up in 1991 in the middle of the night and said to my dad, Mike, they gave me that evidence. And he said, what the hell are you talking about? She said, you remember when we went to the courthouse after the trial and we tried to get our belongings back from their police search and they gave us a box mm-hmm. and it was Mark Jarris and it had the woman's bloody clothes in it. She said, there's DNA in that. I'm going to get my son out of jail. So it was my mom, you know. And when she found that, that memory, they went back and they found the box and they found the evidence. Mm-hmm. And I thought, God is saving me, you know. Then all the evidence is there and they send it to a lab. They get the evidence ready and it's going out to California ships shipping improperly breaks open and I lose all the evidence I was like oh you gotta be kidding me and I kept feeling bad for my mom I kept thinking she's gonna be heartbroken you know did you feel like there was a conspiracy at that point because 
obviously you were cleared of any wrongdoing towards the initial crime, which was the police officer. The police officer had been proven to be a liar. Quite easily. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The jury found me not guilty so of the original Then charges. they had a vendetta against you, and that was when they pursued the death penalty for you for the crime that you also didn't commit. And that's the problem. I escaped only because the Supreme Court was sending my case back for all the destruction of evidence. I, I wasn't trying to escape. Mm. When I tried for DNA testing, the court told me at one point, all right, I'm going to a hearing in the William R. Toll Sr. Annex. I'm before William R. Toll Jr. And William R. Toll III is the prosecutor in the, in the courtroom. They had a duty to protect this conviction so that they wouldn't look like fools for convicting the wrong man. Mm. So they saw the greater good in that sense for themselves rather than justice. So for 15 years, they did everything they could to murder me by calculated effort to destroy the DNA evidence. And I had to live with it. More importantly, I had to grow with it. And do you, what do you feel, I know this is a bit of a stupid question, but what do you feel towards those people now? Nothing. You just disregard them, move on. Look, you know that part in you that says, oh, I could never forgive somebody. You're the biggest idiot ever for thinking that. You know yeah. why? Because they own you. Because yeah. you're going to carry that shit around with Dude, you. Dude, I, I dismiss. You understand? I don't forgive. I dismiss someone from my life in an instant, like a snap of the fingers, gone. Because if I dismiss you from my life, you have no relevance. I don't have to forgive you. You've been dismissed. That's the way yeah, I see I it. Feel I feel I, I treat people like that in my own life very similarly. Like I've had people who I thought were friends for years. And once I realize that they're no good for me and the bad influences, I'll just get rid of them. You'll understand, though, that's also quite... Um, for, for a lot of people watching, that'll be a really unusual I'm idea of life. Do you know I'm what I mean? Surgical. No, and, and I understand and you. You know what you're doing? You're being kind yeah. to yourself. Because mm. if someone's in your life and they're causing you angst and problems every time they're in your life, you're hurting yourself by having them in your life. But you understand how many... I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying there are a lot of kids out there who, mm. you know, and essentially, you know, you're on Facebook and things like that. And you're told, keep all these friends, keep all these people happy oh. in this circle of people. And it's your responsibility to post things and sort of show the yeah, good face to everyone the problem. else. That's the problem. We've gone from having a diary of empowerment to putting our personal diaries on the internet. And so... Bad. Yeah. How do you draw strength from your own words when every one of them is shared? Yeah. And, so, all, and all of them look the same as everyone else's words. And yeah. there's very little meaning. Everyone's posting fucking inspirational bollocks but now, that, but half the people haven't actually lived a day in their life. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to take away judges. from anyone else's experience. Yeah. No, but I understand it. Listen... We have a tendency as human beings to display. Yeah. It's part of our courting ritual and everything. Social displays of this is an attempt to overcome the mundane that you feel. Mm-hmm. I get it. It's nothing to do with me. I, I don't have any friends on Facebook. I send my photograph says, please don't send me friends requests yeah. because I don't want to use the social network to replace a network of friends I have in my life. Yeah. Well, I, and, I, and I'm very serious about it. I want to have the professional one so the people who have been damaged in life can reach out to me and say, Nick, I really want to be down with you, man. I, I, I want to live a better day today. I want to go out and try like you and be a really nice guy knowing that it makes me a nicer person inside to live with. At what point do you feel like this attitude that you've adopted um, came to the forefront of your mind? Was it something that was put in you by your parents? Have you always had it? Or did it, it just come to you when you were in prison? Or? All right. There were two incidents. At the very end, when they realized I was instant innocent, they took me out of my cell, and they sat me down 
like in a big room with a table like this, and they said, Mr. Harris, man, we know if we open that door up, you're going to kill one of us for what we did to you. We kicked your face in, we broke your hands, we did everything to you. If we open this door up, you're going to get us. So we ain't taking no chances. To the day they let you out, you're going to stay in 24-hour lockup. And I looked at him, I said, but you're the one that hurt me. You know what I mean? Like, you're the one that did all that to me. And so I realized right then that I shouldn't really be upset by people like that if I was going to be like them. And he taught me a valuable lesson. And the other one that changed my whole life was when I first got out, my mom sat me down and she was really serious about this. She said, Nikki, I need you to be a really nice man. Or otherwise, the whole purpose of you coming home is a waste of everyone's time. Think about it. All these years I cried for you. You saw the video where she went out and fought and all that, right? She said, everything I did would be a complete waste of time if you weren't a really nice man. Very good point made by And there's one thing that m- makes me wonder. As I, Before I met you, I was wondering, like, will all of those years in prison have made you very similar to all the time, like all the people you spent that time in jail with? Like, did you ever feel at one point, like, I haven't even done anything, but I'm becoming one of them? No, because long before I was set free from prison, I was a leader. I did men's legal work for them. I wrote letters to their mother when they weren't able to. I cared for human beings long before I got out so I could be a caring person. And my mother, at the end of that, said, I need you to make me a promise. I need you to go out every day and make the effort to be a really polite man, especially to women, because you told a lie on Mrs. Craig's murder investigation, and you'll live with that for your life. And I didn't know that was the building blocks of neuroplasticity. I kept going forward and doing this, and I found out I didn't have time to be angry when I was out there being nice to people. And what is neuroplasticity? Neuroplasticity is the healing of your own brain through ritual practices of kindness. Simply put, the kinder you speak to yourself, the kinder that you treat others, the more your brain grows a reward system for it, and you suddenly become beautiful. It's taken me almost 12 years to have it down to the point where every time I go out, I make someone feel. And I mean truly bond with me in that emotive, clever sense of us knowing our biology is before us and knowing inside this really good human being. And when we touch each other like that, we also become stronger and more uh, uh, capable of overcoming the wrong perspective of your life. That's the thing that really ruins us. The inability to put perspective on yourself makes you folly to your own ego and your own anger and your own stupidity. I have a great perspective of this. I'm lucky to be alive. In one year, I went from being homeless, losing a child, having everything done in the horror that you could imagine to yourself. And all along, I kept trying to be nice to myself. And it paid off because I still had the will to hold my head up and be a gregarious, open, and nice person today. I think it's it's very shocking how positive he is. Like, uh, I think it's quite striking because it seems so opposite to the way that other people are on a daily basis. And quite, you know, the sort of yeah. trivial Facebook so, so approach it, of everyone's yeah. happy, you know? The general hey people guys. that we'll meet in the day-to-day of life and people are moaning because they're stuck in traffic or they're moaning because of this reason, that reason... 
And then you see someone who's actually had real hardship to deal with in life, who's one of the most positive people you could ever meet. But that, that does seem like part... I mean, I, again, I'm not going to take away from anyone else's experience, because I think everyone has their own hardship and everyone's going to But we all moan about the bullshit of life too much. That's, that's the perspective saying. that we you're talking into about, that, essentially. Yeah. And, and, but what was interesting to me was uh, sort of during the documentary... And I, I don't kind of want to keep going back to it because there are going to be some people out there who no, haven't seen just, it yet. Maybe they can't afford Netflix. They, they'll, they'll go back and then they'll come back and watch they'll it again. It, sure. But the point is, before you could put words on neuroplasticity or any of those sort of things, you were practicing it. Yeah. So you weren't you weren't taught. You, you know, no doctor came to I you. I had and no said, idea. All yeah. I was doing was keeping a promise to my mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She said, "Nikki, people spit in my face. They made me feel like I was dirt. And I prayed for you and I fought for you. And if you get out now and you act." You make all of that meanness to me. You make your father look like an idiot. You make me look like a fool. How much do you love me? And I said, Mom, I love you. She said, well, then keep one promise to me Mm -hmm. in this life. Be a nice man. And I started. Look, when I got out of prison, they told me I had a three-year window of life. I had to have a liver transplant because the damage done to me in prison was so bad that based on the abuse of drugs as well, I had... Uh, a deteriorating liver, I had a low renal output, and I had to go on a liver transplant list. My mother sat me down and said, that's bullshit. You fought too hard to come home to me. You sit down with me every morning. I'm going to make you my soup, and I'm going to feed you. You're going to take your ass out, and you're going to exercise as best you can until you're so tired you don't think you can make it home, and then you come home to me, and I'll feed you again. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to love you back to life because you, you fought too hard to be my son to come home to let me down. That's what it did. I have the humbleness of life to know that it's so hard just to get out of bed when your body aches like mine. I have crippling pain that would knock most men to the floor. Look it up. T1 and C6 discs are collapsed. I have trapped and impinged nerve roots that end in my chest that make me feel like I'm having a heart attack. The doctor says the danger is if I ever have a real heart attack, I won't know the difference and I'll just drop dead. So be it. So I've learned to actually treat my pain like she's a beautiful mistress. She's a little fucked up in the head and she doesn't know how to love me. So I've been tender towards her because once I was so bitter with pain that I scared the shit out of a little child. So I refused to contort my pain and ugliness and make my my physical self ugly for what I suffer through. In fact, I strive to make it even more of a beautiful experience for me by being nice in face of it. These are the tricks that you have to learn in life. When you're down, you have to learn the first person to be nice to is yourself. One thing that strikes me is um, when you're younger, you're told, don't talk to yourself. People think you're going mad. Hmm. And ironically, um, for me personally, in the, in the lowest of lows I've experienced in life when people have died or whatever, you know, you're really as down as you feel like you can go. Talking to yourself is what gets you through it. Yep. And for you, as someone who's experienced a lot of more lows than the average person, having that chat with yourself is actually really beneficial. The basis of everything I learned how to speak to others was learning how to speak to myself. Mm-hmm. You're not crazy for speaking to yourself. You're, you are actually doing neuroplasticity healing. If you have an image of yourself right now that you like, put it on the wall. Not only that, when someone makes you feel low, go over to them like you are your best friend and say, sweetie, don't let them hurt you. 
You're a really nice person and you didn't deserve that. And just hearing that from a human being heals you, helps you heal. Because if you never heard that and you go to do, oh, I was such a stupid idiot for letting them, that adds to your own woes. In the last few months, uh, I've been dealing with a lot of uh, stresses because of personal things I've just encountered. But every time out, I'm the same way. I'm like, come on, Nikki. You're a really nice man and you really don't deserve this. So just take it on the chin, handle it like a man and be a better man than that. And every time out, I'm not a crazy person for talking to myself because less like you, you get it, man. It's like spring cleaning, isn't it? It's the best coaching you can imagine. I don't want to be someone else's life coach. I want to be my own best coach. Do you think that's something that you would um, do, life coaching? Well, that's I'm what sure the, people would enjoy that. Well, that's what the new book is about. Uh, I've re- I'm writing a book now called The Kindness Approach, and what I'm doing is teaching everybody not to look for Tony Robbins to be your guru guidance. Look for you to be your guru guidance from learning everything that you can. Once you amass your own education, mm-hmm. you should look to yourself for your own strengths. And if you have to get separation by looking at your own image and talking to yourself, do it. Because as long as you continue that positive output, your brain feeds, your brain heals, and you grow stronger. It's funny you should say that because um, I was listening to an interview from Conor McGregor, mm. who's a very successful uh, MMA fighter. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with him. of course. And he said, the problem with all of these other UFC fighters and what makes me different is they're all looking for answers out there. Mm-hmm. From and someone really else. the answer is in here. Yeah, well, see, Conor has tapped into it. Mm-hmm. The reason that Conor puts out and projects so much virility, so much strength, he believes it. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't believe it, he believes it. And that's what's addictive about his personality. And that's how he's been able to predict all of these things he was able to do. Well, if you think about it, it's positive projection 101. And the thing about it is you don't have to be the biggest, strongest man in the world. What you have to do is be the biggest, strongest supporter of your own self. That's the difference between you and Conor McGregor. That's why he'll kick your ass because he believes he can kick your ass. So that's the, the mentality. It's funny. I have that same approach with, um, and I know this is totally different to what you've been through, but like now the problems that you encounter, like, you know, when you're getting like a little bit annoyed, you feel yourself like getting annoyed at someone. Maybe someone's tweeted as something. I'm like, who the fuck? But I do, I do talk to myself. I just haven't really realized I do it until I'm listening to you speak where I'm like, I don't care who believes in me. I, I, I believe in me. And as long as I trust in what I am doing, then that's all I need to do. And uh, it's like the simplest question is, what do you want? If the thing that you want, you deserve, and it doesn't take from anybody, why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't you be the best podcast guy that you can imagine yourself to be and then take it a step further and think, okay, I achieved that. And now I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I know one thing. I am a brilliant writer. And I am a very gifted speaker because I learned these things under dire circumstances. You didn't get to point A to point B without being able to write it and say it. But also, I'm a very loving man and I'm a really good father. And I know that my life is that. I'm going to do this for a while and try and segue into a healing life. What I'm not going to do is split myself. And I think this is a problem a lot of people face. You see your, your career or your work as this taking away from your life when it's really supposed to be your whole life is your family and you do something for sustenance for that family. Mm. Get your shit together in that mindset. You're not a lawyer. You're a family man who works as a lawyer. You're not a bus driver. 
you're a family man who works as a bus driver to care for the family. You got to get your your mind right. Otherwise, your job drives you crazy when you don't see it as the toll you pay to have the luxury for it. Can we go back a little bit? I think because we, we, you know, like you say, the time side of things, we skip through the prison. I would love to talk about prison if that's all right. Simply. No, I love that. I, I, I learned a great deal in there about My old man was in prison for a bit. Yeah. So I've heard a few stories before. Yeah. And I think that most people probably do approach you for those big stories. You know, were you stabbed in the shower or, you know, with, with this or that? You know, what was it like to fight people? Do you remember... You mentioned Gladiator and on the documentary. <laughs> That's definitely the the, the, the big, <laughs> the, the rough side. The gods would sort of select fighters. Yeah. So in the in the mid eighties, you had the population of my prison alone went from eight hundred and fifty to twenty three hundred prisoners. They had to bring in new officers, and they started bringing black officers up from the cities, and they started witnessing all of this racial abuse being heaped on black prisoners by white officers. So one of the ways to diffuse the anger between the staff was to allow the condemned prisoners, such as myself, to be picked out of their cage and put into another man's cage and fight for five minutes between a white prisoner and a black prisoner or a Spanish prisoner, just so that the guards could bet on us and stuff, or the guards could say, yeah, my boy got you and all that. So it was really crazy that you would be sitting there one day and then all of a sudden four men come to your cell and say, yo, you're up. And that meant that you had to go in that cage and fight that guy. And it was terrible because that man was in there and he's scared. And he's trying to hope that you're not going to kill him because of your anger in that cell. And it's crazy because the first guy I fought, he was so big that I couldn't get a hold of him. And he was so afraid that I was going to kill him that he was just making all these noises and stuff. It's crazy. You know, like... uh, it's that moment where you go cannibal, like that uh, caveman, isn't it? You go back to reverting to that fight or flight. It's terrible. And and so it was just five minutes. And so what happened in that time happened in that time. Yeah, and, and then they cleaned him up, put him back in the cell before the lieutenant came back from lunch. And if anyone, I mean, people must have sustained, you must have sustained really serious injuries from that. Like, you know, when you left the cell, what, what state were you in? Yeah, and uh, look, I had some bad ones. I, I don't like watching that movie because... If I lift my neck back, you can see it used to be 86 stitches long. So, yeah. I don't oh, you like, had a hell of a scar, didn't you? Yeah, you can see when I speak in the movie, it keeps going back and forth yeah. together because, I don't know, I turned my head at the right time. That's all I can say, yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've had... The worst beatings were from the staff for the escape because it's weird. Um, they had to send a message. Yeah. Yeah? The escape from death row embarrassed us. Two officers lose a week pay. You're going to pay for that. You're a rapist murderer. You're going to pay for that. And did you, uh, so when you were in prison, did you sustain your innocence all that time? Or did, you know, did they, because essentially these people you're a rapist murderer, you're in prison for it. You'd have been hard pressed to ever get me to admit to you that I was innocent. Do you understand that? Yeah. It became a dirty taste in my mouth because Eric Khan was in there saying it. Yeah. I didn't tell Jackie, mm. the woman I met in prison and married, that I was innocent for many months. Did you say people killed in prison? Yeah. Uh, the worst one that bothers me still every time, every once in a while, it bothers me. I was uh, 21 years old, and there was a kid sitting on his bed, and he had a screwdriver stuck in his head, and he looked up at me. He's like, am I going to die? And I was like, no, no, you're right. And just as soon as I went to comfort him, he just like flopped over and died. And How so did like, that screwdriver end up in his head? Who do you think put it there? Someone stabbed him in his head and left left him in his cell, and I heard the noise as I was walking by. So him. you went up to comfort him? 
Yeah, that one bothers me still. Yeah. He was younger than I was, and, you know, he's just dead, you know, it's like that. Yeah, because there's a point in the film where you do describe uh, someone just dying in the shower, the guards cleaning it up, and then going for lunch. And, the, you know... The- it's just if it's an everyday occurrence. Yeah, I saw... And, that then, and you're like, someone just died. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but it, it doesn't matter because it's it was a death house. It was like, yeah. who cares? Who gives a shit? You're you going there to die. It's a butcher shop. I know. When yeah. I went there, it was crazy. I was on the bus and there was this old head. He's on the bus with me. He goes, where are you going, boy? I said, death row. He said, where at? I said, Huntington. He said, oh, fuck. He said, I got news for you, kid. Nobody gets out of there and survives longer than five years. I hope you make it out of there before five. I remember that. And I did 12 years in that unit. <clears throat> Do you, you can go back and find him and say... You were wrong. I told you so. <laughs> I'm harder than you thought. So. Yeah. <laughs> what? What? Uh, I, I don't want to politicize this too much, but what did that make you think about the death penalty? Those sort of things. I would suggest the, the time. System. Listen yeah. to me. If you really want to inflict some suffering on someone, leave them alive. Mm-hmm. I asked to be executed rather than die in uh, serious pain from my illnesses and stuff. So I asked to be executed because I was so sick from hepatitis C that I thought I was going to die miserably. But I was horrified of the image of myself growing old in prison and suffering for year after year. And your family suffering. Or people yeah, so executing me would have been a much better proposition. Hmm. And that's, had you, uh, because, I, you know, part of getting closer to what I'd imagine your experience is now is accepting the idea of death. How did you, how did you conceptualize that in prison? How did you think about that? When I realized we're all living under a death sentence. Whether you're in or out of prison. Last night, 80,000 people thought they were going home, didn't they? They didn't. My daughter just died a month and a half ago, man. I get it. It's fucking quick. So quick. So I did this one really empowering thing is I I realized it didn't matter if I was going to die in there. I was going to love myself. And, And in fact, it's a weird race against them, isn't it? So you sentenced me to die. I'm 21 years old and you condemn me because I'm sick and twisted and broken. Nobody who's sick and twisted and broken is going to love themselves. So I did that. I began to really try hard to educate myself, to love myself and be in peace with myself so that when they did execute me, I had the most beautiful, eloquent speech for them and I could just simply go. Well, one thing that sort of strikes me when I watch programs about people who have actually committed the murders that they're in jail for um, is I just feel like that's just a bad egg. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like mm-hmm. so, I feel like sometimes some people are just helpless. And I, I don't. I just want to get your opinion about you mean, uh, yeah. you, some people are just sick fucks who are going to kill kids. They're going to do these things that are absolutely terrible. Do you think that there's a line where you can help everyone, or do you think some people are beyond help that are in there? Man, thank God for prisons. Do you understand mm-hmm. me? Thank God we have somewhere to isolate people who are bent on violence and Mm. anger. Do you feel sorry for them at all? I don't, because it's contrived. And I'm sad to say that unless you are a serial killer, your choices were your choices contrived of your own nasty ego and anger. Do you know 80% of people incarcerated were drunk or high at the time of their arrest, right? Yeah. There's part of it, right? Sorry, I look at it this way. A certain percentage of population is going to be violent. We need prisons 
so that people during those episodes need to be incarcerated and separated for our own safety and theirs. Fair enough. But we don't have the right to put each other to death because, like the Italians say, there is no justice without life. Yeah. So we need to strike a balance of recognizing human behavior will not change because we have prisons. People are going to get drunk, fight, fuck, do all the things that they do anyway. We just have to have a curbing system for the ones that are out of control, right? Mm. I'm okay with that. When you met um, your missus who you had while you were in there, was that, was her name Jackie? Jackie, yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and how you met her and, and, and being a prisoner and having a wife? I think the hardest part of it was I was sleeping most of the days because of the heavily medicated inmates making noise all night. I didn't even recognize that this woman took an interest at me because I spoke. But what I did was I came out to an interview uh, to be interviewed about my prison conditions by these two people who were trying to shut the prison down. And I ignored my setting, man. Like, it didn't matter to me that they were being torturous and mean. I just wanted to have a conversation with a human being. And all of a sudden, this woman took an interest in me and she came back by herself and started visiting me. And I felt like shit, man. I thought, man, if I let this girl fall in love with me, I'm going to steal her life. And so I was just about to tell her, stop coming to see me when I learned about DNA testing at 88. And I told her, man, I said, look, I got something really horrible to tell you. I actually didn't kill that woman and I can prove it with DNA. And she was just stunned by that so much that she wanted to talk about me and her being in love instead because the thought of me coming home hadn't even been a reality. Because for those who don't know, you were initially convicted on a blood type, uh, that you had the same blood type as the guy who actually did it. Yes, sir. Allegedly. Um, But DNA testing was a new thing at that point in time. And um, eventually it would clear you. Yeah, I, God. I didn't. I didn't think it would work, man. And when the evidence kept getting destroyed, I kept watching this really lovely person, Jackie, like become diminished. And I felt so bad because she gave me such a beautiful gift. She taught me how to become a man. Mm-hmm. She gave me enough self-perspective of myself to not think of myself um, as masculine. That I needed to be masculine to be hard. My strength would be in my kindness and and how I was a loving person. That the brawn was to defend myself. The strength of who I would be would be in my loving nature. And she taught me how to become a man right before her. And yet I felt so bad that I was going to diminish her life and everything. I was actually glad she left me, man. When the evidence spilled and she walked out, I was so relieved that I didn't have to watch her suffer anymore because... This is a woman for nine years, every month, six times a month, drove 275 miles each way to come see me, man. But men can't do that for women. You're damn right, they don't. Women, women, are, <laughs> women are, that's one thing, I give women a lot of stick on this podcast, right? I joke on and that, but women are a different breed of men in that respect. We don't make literally. that kind of effort. Yeah, Laura <laughs> Thompson's teaching me that right now. I have a woman in my life who's humbling me by becoming not only one of my best students, but is truly becoming my inspiration. And to be with a woman and admire her at the same time is a real treat. And I love this person so much because 
She didn't think that love would find her in her age at the time that we did. She's 32 and she thought, oh, I got kids already. I didn't think guy would fancy me. And she was made to feel that way by society, actually. But yet a finer woman you couldn't believe. And I like it that women truly are the salt of the earth, man. And we I, need I to, like what yeah. you were saying before about how it's harder to be kind than it is to be nasty. And, and, and to realise that yeah it is I mean flip just it takes no effort walking down the street in London you see everyone's got a scowl on their face pretty much like but that's you know what I mean? that, what, sorry to cut you off but that is that is also quite interesting because it is you came from Philadelphia a massive city we were talking earlier about how that was once a place where slaves would go because they hoped they would be free from uh, no slavery yeah. and everywhere else so that was a place of hope but if a city grows to a certain size, it becomes almost a mental strain on people. If you look, you know, if I walked down the street every day in London and looked at every person in the face and was like, good morning, good morning, good to see you. If everyone did that on the tube, that would make people mentally ill because you, you couldn't, literally couldn't interact with that number of people. So cities like Philadelphia it, it at times, breeds that, uh, yeah. attitude. It's all, but it, it, it's almost ingrained that, that you have to take that approach or you go crazy the other way. Yeah. So it almost breeds that set of people who are, who are going to go out there and kill each other yeah. because there's, you look down and you think, right, don't make any contact with these other people. I'm not like that. You know, like once I, just when I first come to London, I'm not joking. You're fresh off the boat as a northerner. It's not, I'm not joking. Yeah. so different in London. Yeah. I, I was in a uh, Uber. I was going somewhere and, and just as I was driving, I rolled the window down. As the guy was driving, rolled the window down and I just started going. Yeah. And like people are looking at us, it's so confused. But I just wanted to freak them out a little bit. Like, you know, when Homer does it on The Simpsons. And I was just like, I'm just going to freak people out and be nice to them. But like, it is a bit, it is harder to be nice than it is to be nasty. It just comes so, there's no especially effort. Especially when you're not getting a reward. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Especially when people are being nice to you in return, then it's very hard. Is that what you're saying? And that's why you have to reward yourself. And so for that reason, because there's there's obviously the sort of, you know, the Richard Dawkins of the world who talk about altruism and those sort of things. You're not talking about altruism, are you? You're talking about creating a system which rewards. You're not talking about selfless acts oh, going out dude, there and doing... All I'm trying to do is make myself the nicest possible person so that my body doesn't break down in poor health and I can be a loving person. Has nothing to do with the altruistic yeah. going out and meeting you and making you feel whatever... I'm trying to draw enough strength from my daily activity of kindness to make myself able to go home and be happy in my life. That's it. Because essentially you see, because I think the problem is most people would hear that and they think there's a selfish element to that and their conclusion stops there. Right. They see the selfish side that you want to be happy or you want to get something from it, but they don't see that it becomes a full circle that because you look after yourself, you can therefore look after other people. And I'm also putting out niceness. Yeah. I'm not going about taking my kindness from the hurts of others and I'm making a genuine effort. If you don't respond to me, that's okay. Mm -hmm. I like this thought. Anybody now who has angst with me has lost out on a really loving person in her life, and that's their loss. Did you uh, connect with Jackie at all after you got out and got released? Who? Jackie. Jackie. I did met you have her. a phone call or anything? Yeah, or? I did. I had breakfast with her and all, but she was with a new partner, mm -hmm. so it was wow. like you don't want to ruin her life by Was being... she happy, though, for you? Yeah, yeah, man. She was really happy for me. She was there the day I got out. My mm -hmm. parents were there. My mom uh, and Jackie were mm -hmm. hugging and everything. So it felt good that... Mm -hmm. I put the closure behind me. Look, it hurt when she left me, yeah? Mm. But I also recognized that I was meant to go through that. Do you feel like, I mean, I'm of the opinion that everything happens for a reason. And I've been through some real low lows in my life, to be honest with you. 
and I think alright I was supposed to go through that do you know like it was just meant to be and when, whenever my day comes and I'm supposed to die I'll be quite comfortable with that as long as I've achieved what I'm trying to do in life um, do you feel that way about your life after everything you've been through yeah there's a lot of because at some point you must have felt like this is taking the fucking piss this <laughs> me I mean I know that everything comes for a reason but you, you're taking the piss of it I'm, I'm learning though if it doesn't happen for a reason you even understand it happened. Mm. And that really doesn't matter. The whole perspective is, so what are you going to do about it? You're going to take it like a bitch, cry and just destroy your life because you didn't get your way. Or are you going to say, you know what? That's messed up, but I deserve better. I'm going to try and figure this out. Because you know what? Life is a series of steps. We start off crawling we think we got it nailed once we're up and walking. And man, don't we think we're badass when we're running. And the whole time we're dying. The whole process. No matter how alive you feel, no matter what, you're dying. Today you die a little bit more. And you have to sleep, so take a third of your life away. Now how much do you feel like running? Mm. So you better pay attention that this is a fleeting thing for us all. We're biologically designed to further our human species. The number one drive of all of our sciences and all of our educated efforts are to, pervert, to preserve this species. The only purpose you hold is to give all of your good to whoever you can to better the species. That was your design. One thing that really struck me in the film was the, the part where you talk about the, the guard who was very kind to you and allowed you the books and spoke, you know, essentially gave you a gateway to educate yourself and learn a little bit more and also gave you the tools to some extent to do well, that. Because it they just goes to show you how dark I was. I used to beat my head on a wall. I thought that if I stopped being angry, I'll never get out of here. My anger was going to get me out of here, man. man that was ang- the motivation. Yeah. That was what you're drawn so, from. So I would beat my head on the wall mm. until I made myself angry and I would split my head open. So the guards took me to the nurse's station and patched my head up and the guy felt so bad for me for being so idiot-like he said, boy, you go in that cell and you get them books and you start reading them. That's the only thing going to save you. He was right. And did you just, because in the film you, you describe it, it, it's, did you just accept that and sort of think, was it, a, how did that feel? Was it I had epiphany? nothing else to do, man. I'm in a bleak cell. I'm 22 years old. I'm hurting like you wouldn't believe. And I got no one to talk to because if I start speaking, they're going to come in and jab me in the ass with a needle. So I started and I was embarrassed by the number of words I didn't understand. So I took that booklet and I saw it's called the 10 times rule. Write a word's definition down 10 times. Write its meaning down 10 times. Use it in a sentence 10 times. You'll never forget the word. When I read that, I was like, okay, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this book here and I'm going to read every word that I don't know and I'm going to do that trick. About two years later, I knew every word in the dictionary. Not only that, but I was writing and I was I remember the first letter I wrote to my mom when I was in prison. You can't even read it. So embarrassing. A couple of years later, I was writing legal briefs. And I mean, that's a whole other line of questioning of how you got to write legal briefs and those sort of things. Studying, just studying. I just yeah. became the biggest drug addict for books. Mm-hmm. I read over 9,400 books before I quit counting. Like, And that had nothing to do with the six years of psychology, reading the world's religions for three years, doing all kind of countless things like that, writing a 10-page letter by hand every day to Jackie for nine years. 
and that what I found interesting about that is you're you're a really good storyteller, and in the film you obviously you tell your own story. It's you, it, you know you don't get you get about I got about halfway through this documentary and suddenly realised I've only heard one voice for the past nobody else five minutes or yeah, whatever. Because he describes what's happening so well that you're imagining and they're showing you the, the scenes a little bit of where it was. Want to know that. where that comes from? But it was amazing. You acted out as well. Yeah, you know. When you're in prison, there's no new in sensory input, is it? Yeah. It's the same every day. So every one of your memories becomes magnified because you're playing them over and over and over. And not only that, when you're realizing it, the worst feeling is if I forget the memory, it's dead, it's gone. So you really work hard to bring out every nuance of every memory. And it made me a very beautiful t storyteller in the manner that I learned the cadence of speaking correctly and having the dictum, more importantly, anyone can speak, but without the knowledge of what you speak, you just sound silly. So I took every little bit of it and I made it as beautiful as I could so I could draw you in. Because that's what all we love is the campfire story. goes back thousands of years of drawing a painting on a cave. Listen, this is what I saw. And it, it, you even kind of get affected by your voice because your voice is you talking about that being almost like an instrument for you or it something. Is. And the way that you tell the story is important. Why and how did you realize that? Because it got me through being beaten senseless or having horrible images in my head. If I knew if I could speak to myself beautifully, I can speak to the world. But I had to learn how to speak. I was so ignorant. Oh my God. Aphasia directly affects your processing of language. People who have a stutter suffer from aphasia. Uh, I, I, that's aphasia. Mm. Your brain can't function slow enough to allow your vernacular to be spoken. Your brain's too fast. So I had to learn how to breathe, speak, and derive a mannerism that would stop me from flubbing my words, getting it wrong. But then I learned how to actually emote and say things with feeling. And, and the poignancy of it all is, was, was wrapped around me in my suffering anyway. The only way I learned love was being tortured openly. And when it's that mix, I think it just made me someone really unique to the world that I, I believe is worthy of sharing. The only reason I'm on this show is because I think that there's someone listening to this I told Big Man, I really believe this. Someone today needed to hear this. And as long as I go forth with that, I don't have much of an ego about any of it. Because I believe that one person benefiting from what I went through makes the shit that I had to fucking suffer from not as important. I'm sure there'll be more than one who benefits from this, mate. Fair play. Um, I think what amazed me and one thing I picked up on is someone who classes himself to be a pretty good speaker. Mm. When you talk... I was watching this movie thinking to myself, he never says, uh, not once. Mm. You, you know that? Like, because yeah. all YouTubers, and I, we watch these guys who are professional speakers, uh, uh, and we edit it all out, and we try and chop it up and make it seem smoother. Not on this. <laughs> Apart from on this show, yeah. nothing edited. Um, Clearly. <laughs> so I could tell... You were an, a very intelligent man, extremely intelligent man. 
And then I remembered, as I started appreciating, God, this guy is so, like, on another level to what you, you meet in your everyday life. This is the same guy who was an idiot who thought, I know, my mm. friend, uh, he probably dead. I'll just blame a murder on him. Now, what I, what I want to get across to people out there who, who might not have high self-esteem, who are probably like I am right now, I'm in awe of you because you're, you're just on another level of people that you meet in your everyday life. The way you speak is amazing. How did you go from that ignorant guy to there? And I, I want you to tell people, like, how ignorant you were, how, how what a normal guy you were at one point. And I know. Because some people out there will not feel like they can achieve anything. And I'm looking at you thinking, you went from that to this. It's like watching Pele kick a bicycle kick of a football through the goalposts, isn't mm-hmm. it? You're like, how can he do that? But long before you saw him on the pitch... He did it every day. And what I'm trying to tell you is I I got tired of feeling low. I got tired of feeling worthless. So I started to teach myself how to speak to myself. When I mastered the ability to make myself feel better for speaking kindly to myself, I then had the courage to speak to others. And then I didn't care what the reaction was. Because I knew what I was saying was true. And as long as I felt like I was sharing a truth, no one can knock me back. So I, I gave myself a lot of patience. And more importantly, as a young person, you need to educate yourself. If you're feeling low, it's because you're feeling ignorant. Well, you're the one holding yourself back. You need to go out and read and develop yourself. Read something every day because reading is an unnatural act. It's language is an auditory process, but we've contrived an artificial exchange of ideas in writing. Mm-hmm. That's why your brain gets tired when you read. But like an athlete, if you pick it up and you keep at it, you keep at it, suddenly you get fluid with it. And the more self-confidence from that, you'll change your idea that you're worthless and low. The, f- the best feeling I ever had was at the time of my trial, I was 20 years old and people in the room could talk over me. In 1989, I conducted my own DNA hearing, and I educated the court on DNA. I broke down for the court what mitochondrial DNA meant and how it was passed on for the mother. I was the foremost knowledgeable person in the room, and even though I was denied in that hearing, I walked out of my head up because I knew I had changed from the person that they could speak over. One thing I think that gives you a lot of power in life is not giving a fuck what people think too much. Like, and, and I'm, I'm definitely a believer in that. You don't have to worry about everyone's opinion of you. What you, The man who's most important in the room, opinion, is the one you are. And the person you love. About yourself. Let's be honest. The people immediately around you too. Yeah, and, and obviously your family right. and people like that. So all right, I call it my, re- own, my own reflection. My own reflection can never be distorted. Because no matter what image someone else has of me, I know the true image of myself. Now, I learned this one in a very dark place, so mine's really strong. No one can shake mine. But if you have a self-image of yourself and you know three things about yourself, one, you're a good person, two, you're a loving person, and three, you make an effort for others, then you deserve to have everything in respect that others won't give you. So give it to yourself. And I really do that. I think that's the first part. Like he says, it's the hardest point, isn't it? How often do you check yourself or sort of 
step back and did, kind of look I did at, it today. Yeah. Like, because that's something that I think, I think is quite important. We're, we're saying, what you're saying is, you know, you shouldn't give a fuck. I, I, I completely agree with that. But at the same time, there are people out there who are very selfish people yeah. and they, they take that and they go, well, I don't give a fuck either. And in the that, wrong way. That distorts it in the way. Do you know what I mean? Because that can be distorted. The same people who thought, and I mean this, the very same people who at one point thought I was a distorted-minded rapist killer mm. now think I am one of the finest people they know. Whose perspective changed? Mine that, yeah. or theirs? Yeah. Because you knew it the whole time. So what I say is... It's not so much you don't give a fuck. I care what people think about me because I project what I want people to know about me. But if they get it wrong, it doesn't bother me. That's what I'm trying That's to That's where I yeah. go. I don't want to put out that, you know... In uh, an ideal world, people, yeah, you know, people are like you. I'm just saying, you'd rather people like you. Yes. But if they don't, you're not going to lose sleep over No, it. in fact, it makes me strive harder to be a nicer person to the next person. Because I think we get knocked back. And this is why I'm always polite to the police. You wouldn't know this, but when I pass a police officer in the United Kingdom, I always say, excuse me, officer, has anyone thanked you for doing your job today? They give me the same look every time. Like, Are you fucking? And I always do this. I say, no, it's important to tell you how much you mean to me. Thank you, sir. And they're like, wow. Because I believe that the next interaction he has with the next person, he might give them a break. He might be a better <laughs> officer. Trying to save lives. He's trying to save. Lives. That's part of it. I think it, it, we don't have guns on the cutlass in this country. Yeah, but that's why part. I got mad respect because there's an officer who died and Luton took on a man with a sword and he yeah. stood there with a baton. Yeah. So I got mad respect for the good officers, not people who are abusing the position, but. Good police officers are so important to build up, and they're the ones you're going to call. Someone breaking in your house, someone's hurting your mom. You're going to call them, right? Mm. So don't though hate the police. They're the ones with the guts to run towards the bullets or the knives or whatever. So you really have to have respect for your gift of having them. Mm. And essentially, that does put you in quite a unique. You are you find yourself in a very unique position. I think that's what a lot of people will. Uh, maybe the cynics will level at you. you. You've had a very unique life. You know, you've had, uh, in many ways, people, some people call you lucky. Do you know what I mean? In Truly, a very sort of weird, twisted way. And I, I'm not saying that. I, I guess I just want to voice this question in that sense. You find yourself in a very unique perspective where you can comment on police, drugs, all these things. All Child are, abuse, all of it. Yeah. All which are really prevalent issues in society right now. Things that we're struggling with. Even the president of the United, even the president of the United States, the president of the United States struggles with this. The people behind him struggle with this. The United Kingdom clearly struggles with this. It, how do you consciously go out and sort of think I can affect that? Because at the same time as thanking of a police officer, there are it. people who are angry with them. There are people out there who are checked by police officers every day, right. and it goes the wrong so way. So you understand the butterfly effect, right? Yeah. Butterfly flapped its wing in South America and there's a hurricane. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's in, that's my position, too. I don't know who is listening to this podcast today, but it will affect them. Yeah. Right. My hope is that that one change leads to the change, to the change, to the change, to someone having a better moment. So I recognize if I come on here with a poisonous tongue, I incite the same shit from the wrong side. So mm -hmm. I'm contributing to it. Don't go around complaining in life with your head down and your nasty words out because you're making it just the same or worse. Every day of my life, I do have a checkup. I had one this morning before I left the house. Um, 
Laura and I were going through uh, one of those moments where she misses the baby. You know, we just, I lost my baby a month and a half ago. I can't tell people enough how hard it is mm. to put your child down for a nap. You go back and she's dead. You fucking look in her face. You can't do anything. Life is hard. But in my kindness to her, I made her laugh before I left. And that changed her goddamn day. Mm. I don't know about the rest of the world, but I can help the one around me, can I? Mm. And what's more important than that? Yeah, and I came in this room and I earned respect from every single one of you by trying to be exactly as I am in my personal life every day. And that is my reward. Now, I've made the room better, which is part of the room, the world, right? Mm. You can't go around and take on Ebola. Yeah. Yeah? But I can take on today with all of the little things that I can with kindness. And I'm doing a hell of a job of it. Because in the last year, I've helped many people not kill themselves, enter treatment, get off drugs, take themselves seriously, stop being nasty. Just stop being nasty to themselves. So I look at, I have changed the whole world in one year since my film came out in June especially. And my film was released here in the United Kingdom last year on BBC4. So in one year, I've changed the world a lot. And yet my own personal life was a true challenge. I was homeless a year ago. My marriage broke up. My wife left me for another man after six years of marriage. I ended up on the streets of Los Angeles. I was as down mentally as anyone in this room. But I did the one thing I know to be true. I recognized that I'm a good person. I deserve to be loved. And I'm a loving person, so I'm going to get back up and go back forward. One of the main issues that I see with people I meet on an every day-to-day life who have a, like, a lack of love about them, because what, what strikes me about you is you're a very loving bloke, right? People who are raised by parents who don't show them love, it's the biggest breeder of assholes in the world. So many people I meet, and I'm like... What's wrong with you? And then I meet the parents. I'm like, that's right. What's wrong with you? You'd never been loved in your whole fucking pa- life, mate. Passed on you, the dysfunction. And, and unfortunately, it's a rarity when you've been brought into the world by two assholes who don't even love their kids for whatever reason, for them along the way to realise I need to love myself. Yeah, and they had to so what, what happens is that asshole breeds another asshole breeds another asshole until out of no, there's a throwout where someone who is a very loving, kind person gets born into that family and stops it. And, and it's not even do on you the asshole level. As well? Yeah, it's not even on the asshole level. If you think about it, it's the same with the repetitiveness of people passing on the bad parenting of abusing each other mm. verbally and uh, like cheating on their partner and being an alcoholic and, and beating the kids and all that and just passing on cycle after cycle without recognizing the only hope of having meaning in your life is passing on any good you are to the young. Mm. The most precious resource, you're squandering your history because they're going to remember you as a piece of shit. Mm. I, it's true, ain't it? I mean, how many people you know and they say, oh, my dad was a right cock. No, no, yeah. I mean, the amount of people I've met who, who uh, now I'm getting older and I see people having kids and I'm like, why do you have kids? And I, and I, and I realize, oh, you're having kids because it's the done thing. Yeah. You're, not, you're not having kids because you love you children. Understand your own you're having kids because it's an extension of who you are. Oh, oh and, and uh, Jemima's got this and Tristan's got that. It's actually not about... Jemima's that. Do you know what I mean? It's not about... I meet so many people who have kids and, and you know, you get great parents. I'm not saying you don't. And I, I'm 
proud to know some really great parents, but so many people who I'm like, you don't even like your own kids. You don't do you, even love them. Because, it, it baffles me. I, I mean, as much as it baffles you, I guess my reply to that would be, it doesn't serve them for us to judge them anyway. So how do you deal with those people? It doesn't because serve them. But the problem no. is when you raise the issues with these kinds of people and you're like, you might want to not shout at your child that, like that. But that person's living, I think that person is living in a really difficult place. And like you say, Talking. if you go there and you show them love in that sense, then it, it's going to change their perspective. Because if we if we just attack them and say, you're a shit parent, you know, I think a lot of people go down that route of just getting reinforcing shit parent. Like, yeah. I'd, I'd never say that to their face because I actually feel, feel very it. bad yeah, about the situation and I'm watching this parent who clearly doesn't love themselves or their child, a child that's raised, getting raised with a parent that doesn't love them and I'm thinking, well, this is a crust of fuck. I don't get involved in it but I'll sit back and watch from the sidelines and think, it's, and, and, I, and I meet so many people who are fucked up off of bad upbringings and but anger and stuff like that is often just a lack of acceptance of the situation ignorance. and it, it does seem a lot like ignorance. you learn to accept whatever situation it was that you were in that's why I'm throwing all my good into these children around me because that's my only receptor who can lo- carry it forward the longest and that's what he's trying to mm. do in this in this example of, of saying, look, man, the only thing that matters is if, if you want good to linger in someone, give them your good. If you want the poison, all you're going to do is make them either see you for what they are and dismiss you from their lives and have no relevance, or they're just going to be like you, like you said, and, yeah. and carry forward the dysfunction. I left Philadelphia because no one recognized me. I didn't speak like anyone. They, my own family said, you know, who, are, who the fuck are you? You know, you, you don't speak like us. And they were all negative about it. Oh, you hold yourself above us and all. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, it's really negative, isn't it? And I thought, I need to be kind enough to myself to leave. So... I've erased family members out of my life because they're just literally... Just being around them, I feel me chest tighten up and I'm like yeah. I don't fucking like you in the slightest if we weren't blood relatives I wouldn't have anything to do with See, you that's brilliant and I'm like of... I'm doing this because it's once again the done thing hmm. fuck the done thing I'm going right. to have people in my life who I actually like who love me I love them and it's not a fucked up relationship here's how I do it man I don't have people interact in my life who are causing me chaos and stress because I'm dying just like them mm-hmm. they're not smart enough to tick the little box in the morning but I know I'm a lucky person just to get up that day so when people are like that in my life what I try my best to do is go silent on them they ain't getting no you feedback you the fuckers out yeah because you ain't getting no feedback and yeah. I don't give a, I don't give a shit if you're family or not I deliberately take people out of my lives who are toxic because then my life gets ruined mm. I love you from afar <laughs> I really love you from another planet. <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, one thing I'm getting from you, and it, it, it's from a different reason, um, I think once you accept how short life is, and for me, what made me realise that was the death of people I loved. For you, I, I, I guess it was being told you're getting sentenced to death, but death, either way, teaches us life isn't fucking going to be very long. You better make the absolute most out of that. And in that in that time, you don't suffer arseholes. Let's just put out as good... And people might think, what good do you put out, Brian? But I'm trying, to make question. People, I'm trying to make people laugh on the internet. I'm not trying to do any harm. Um, and I like your attitude on life. I like the way you think. It's very clear. I know, and I paid a hell of a price for it. And that's why I'm so glad to be writing the book, The Kindness Approach, now, because I really want people to get down on this. The way I've done it is 
I love the one image I have in my head. Anybody who's ever hurt me is just twisting now. Look at him. He's happy as shit. <laughs> How the hell can this man be on stage with a new play and a new book, new TV show and speaking opportunities? And Why the hell would he have a woman in his life? He's happy. Look at him playing with his kids. You know why? Because you, whoever you were that hurt me, have no meaning. None to my life. I've dismissed you so much from my life that my focus is on being nice to the strange person I haven't met yet. Mm. I, I think that's a great attitude. You got to have it because I, at some point it becomes toxic. All of the things that have been done to you are a toxic pile of your own angst and your ego picks it out and says that did this to me that person did this to me this person made me feel so rotten I ain't never gonna forget that bastard in fact when I see them I'm gonna make sure they know how angry I am and you know what you give them the biggest reward for their effort ever oh, yeah. because I've had people that they have rent done them some, space in your mind no I've had some people that do some horrible sh things to me right and I'm right in front of them and I'm Curiously open and happy and they're looking at me like man I thought he was going to just let everyone in the room know I did them wrong and as I'm passing I'm going like see ya like got no time for you and that really kills anyone who thinks that they want to hold you down that you have absolutely no effect on Nick Garris because look at him man the dude's actually happy he's in love you know you, you see him everywhere he's speaking at universities he's writing books he's writing stage plays how can he do that after I did that to him? You know why? Because I'm a better man than you, sir. Bye. How much do you think um, going to prison sort of allowed you that time and space to be able to think that? Like, do you... I know, I know it's a weird thing to I say. I wouldn't be alive. Do you see it as a not a blessing, but a sort of a I, chance? I keep telling people, death row was the greatest adventure of my life. Mm -hmm. It was neither a terrible experience, nor was it a joyful one. What it was was the whole basis of who I now became. If I take it as a terrible ordeal and I lament things like how they crushed my hand or any of that, then I'm the fool. Because what I did was I got a world-class education by being smart enough to use all the time they gave me to read, 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 educate, educate, and grow so that if I ever did survive, I could use it. So I did the smartest possible thing. I took every negative and I turned it as best I could into tools to survive. That's it. What's it like uh, being on death row, sort of watching everyone else leave and knowing, and knowing where they're going? Yeah, I, I was there. I actually talked uh, my friend in uh, giving up his appeals and he was executed. It was really hard, but he was suffering so bad because they crushed his hip. And his name was Keith Settlemar. He killed a childhood friend of his over burglaries that they were doing. And his friend turned state evidence on him. And uh, it was terrible because he was such a nice guy. You're thinking, man, you ruined your whole life over one minute. Mm. And it's a shame because Keith asked to be executed because he was suffering. And I was the one that was telling him you had to respect man's law just like God's law if that's the case. So you're not killing yourself, Keith. You're just respecting the law. And when he understood that, then he went forward with his own execution. So for me, it was a relief to see him go. But then when they executed someone like Gary Heidnick, who they uh, they patterned his character as uh, Buffalo Bill in the Silence of the Lambs. Fucking hell. Oh, this fucking, oh my this God. This motherfucker. And you, you met him or were around him or sort of? I spent what? three years, I'm going to tell you about Gary. Gary Heidnick in 1979 abducted a mentally ill 
black woman and kept her in a cage for a while, impregnated her. He got caught for it. He went to prison. While he was in prison, he endured a lot of abuse by the prisoners for attacking a black woman. Well, he made a half a million dollars trading stocks in prison, Graterford, and he got out in the mid-80s. And he went back to Philadelphia, took the money he made off the stocks, and he bought an old Rolls-Royce that was broken-engined, put a Chevrolet engine in it, got a house, and he began abducting prostitutes in the area and putting them in a pit under his house. Uh, Whenever, that, that's where the, the Silence of the Lambs element comes, because he used to put them down a well in and that, pit, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, and he had four women in this pit torturing them, and he fed one of them to the others and ground up dog food because he was creating a master race with these women. What he thought was a master, yeah. The worst part was I was on a five-story high building hermetically sealed and the power would go out because of the flooding in the Pittsburgh area. And whenever the power went out, hour after hour, he put on a performance where he would do the falsetto voices of his victims, high-pitched and whining, oh, I know the man gonna kill us. And then he would do this thing where he was describing the people he had in the floor watching him and why he had to kill these people and all this shit. And it was like, it would stick in your head for days, you know? His mind was like a horror film. Yeah, and then the crazy thing is, they go to get. He found out from Keith being executed, he could get his glory again. So he volunteered to die. And in the very end, his interracial daughter came out of nowhere and tried to save his life, and he broke down and cried like a little baby in front of her. Mm. So he wasn't evil. He was pretending to be evil. And he wasn't sick. He was just a bastard. And you, but you spent essentially, uh, you know, a good portion of your life. Yeah. around these kind of guys you know you were saying to us earlier which was fascinating you played chess against the, you know these guys serial killers people because essentially also serial killers are very clever people but you know it's just that they've chosen to put their hand to you don't want to give them that reward of being clever people but you know what I mean some, no, some, some are super no, clever you know what I mean some of them want to hear that though do you know what I mean I'm sorry yeah. but listen there are some super clever people incarcerated yeah but because of intoxicants or the wrong circumstances they got caught and you ended up playing chess against these guys. Yeah, I learned this wonderful game. And as long as my board had 64 squares numbered identically to yours, I could call out the board square regardless uh-huh. of the piece as my move. So the opening, if a, a guy in prison ever knew this, it would be 13 to 29 is king's pawn, two squares up. Uh, 53 to 37 would be the answering one on the other side. So you would know that. So we would sell, yell out both numbers. I ended up playing a guy named Jay Schrader, who was a serial killer, and I humiliated by trouncing him in the game when he was out there on the tier telling everyone how smart he was and how clever he was as a, a man. And I took him apart on the chessboard and said, hey, I'm beating an idiot. Anybody went in on it? He just went mental. Like he, For three years, this man tried to murder me, and he ended up dying of stomach cancer, so he missed his chance, sadly. And he tried to... But he, because that's a really weird thing in the first place. I don't want to anger people on the street, but... Uh, I mean, you know, I anger, I anger certain people I live with, but I don't want to anger people on the street. <laughs> but the point is that you've been locked in a building with this guy mm-hmm. who wants to kill you. Yeah. And your approach to that is to laugh it off or... I'm not, not saying that's Not unusual. only that, but like enjoy it. Yeah. Like I used to sing to him and good morning, you know, Jeffrey. Uh, and did you to piss him off or to play well, the game or what? All right. Some At some point, I, you got to understand, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> how I deal with these men is how they're going to deal with me. 
So at first, I had to be violent like them. Then, I learned to be so clever, they came to me for hope that I would help them with their legal work and stuff. Mm -hmm. I also had a cottage industry. I was a wealthy man on death row. I was selling powdered donuts for 10 envelopes apiece. I had a gambling operation with the football pools where I was helping guys bet. And so we had a nice little thing. I paid for presents for my parents on the outside by hustling my legal work. I never relied on anyone. I had my own diet. I became very, very affluential because I was educated. Mm. Just like in life, ain't it? And you essentially that brought you protection from the uh, violent side where you started. Stature. No one protects you on death row. No one. So you protect yourself essentially. Man, you get your heart ripped out in a heartbeat if you think somebody's not going to hurt you. But what I had was stature. I was the guy that was on death row so long. I was there their first week when they were pissing themselves and scared to death. Three weeks later when they were acting tough guy again. And I witnessed all that, you know guy comes in he's 24 years old he's killed a cop you know and he wants to project this badass image then he breaks down because it's so hard because the guards are just tormenting him i was there through all that so they couldn't act fake with me when you've done 20 plus years on death row ain't nobody gonna mess with you i don't think you've got anything to prove at that point. But, but when you've done a few weeks you're still that vulnerable person oh, yeah. and essentially you are still a body that at any point everybody in breaks prison, yeah i got news for you anybody goes to death row at some point is going to break down mentally I seen the hardest dude ever, man. It was this uh, one of the few rare black serial killers named Arthur Bomar. When mommy died, they had to console his ass with pills and everything because he went mental in his cell, broke his TV, crying. And I'm like, damn, you crying over mom? What about all the women you butchered? Hmm. See what I mean? And you said you didn't say that to him. Of course I did. When you say, of course I did. Uh, I mean, that's a really incredible thing to. Through the sort bars. Of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about all the women no, you've you, no, right. you know, you describe in the film, you're then in the showers. Oh, these guys. You know, you're vulnerable to oh, those yeah. guys. You're completely <laughs> naked, wet, Dude. on a, you know. Six at a time. So, yeah. No, I've had a, I had a few scrapes. I probably had about a dozen times. Yeah. And how do you regard that now? Like, do you ever think about that? You know, if I'm asking you these questions, you know, how do you see that? I know how to kill you. I know how to harm you. Yeah. I know how to defend myself. <laughs> See, I'm looking into Lawrence's eyes as he's saying these I'm being honest. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm not asking you these Lawrence questions from the mind you in any way. You I'm know what I mean? I'm giving you my whole answer. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. I know how to kill you. I know how to harm you. I know how to defend myself. Yeah. I don't need to indulge any of it anymore because I've, exactly. I've proven it that yeah. I could. So if I was mental lead push to the edge i could be forced to kill you like any human being i could also harm you in a split second you wouldn't even know it was coming yeah but i could also defend myself from you if i needed to and that series of confidence of acknowledging all three is very important because it's my self-control involved in each instant right so if I have that self-confidence where I know I can harm you and I don't have to, I know I can defend myself from you if I have to, then I don't have to indulge my testosterone. I don't have to fight to prove I'm tough. Yeah. Because essentially you could hit me right now. Right. You know, you could do whatever you want. And, you know, I'll you could... I'll it's all right. I, even then, though. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like, that's what makes it fascinating, I think, to people on the outside. I've never been to prison no, like, and I have no intention of going to prison. But essentially it... it Gave you something, it gave you tools. It gave me a lot of survivor skills because, yeah, I, I've seen a guy get his eye taken out in a flash because yeah. the guy waits for you in a second to turn to the right angle and then he hooks and his finger in your eye and rips it out. And that's where you 
Yeah, like things like that. Like you don't have um, this square off. Me and big man bust chest and we're like, yeah, we going to do no. He or I am the last person to know about the attack because it's full on. He's been waiting for you to do that. And that's the difference. Yeah. So what I learned is to have an awareness that people can be violent, chaotic, but I I need not be raising myself to the challenge because anger is a frivolous thing that we squander. I've seen people jump out of their car and get into an altercation because of the road stuff and put themselves away for prison time. It's ridiculous. Stupid. Absolutely stupid. Instant way we throw away our lives. Mm. Crazy. Do you know what it is? I once was in, um, had a bit of a road rage incident. Um, a bit of a road rage incident. I mean, I've had a few back in the day when I was a pent up young idiot, basically. When? And I realised that I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm much calmer than I was. It may be hard to believe, right? <laughs> Barcelona says different. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And I, I'm, I must be about 22, actually. I'm screaming at this guy, and I'm like, I'm literally telling him, I'm going to fucking kill you. And I realised um, after um, he drove off, and, and a few, couple of minutes went by, and I thought, I was so, I'd spent so much energy screaming at the guy, and ah, and I thought, if I had a fucking thought, I wouldn't have had two minutes in this, to be honest, because I'd, I'd used all my energy up on how angry I was. Yeah, crazy. And, and, and I realised after that, I thought, I'm never going to, let myself get that far again because if I ever do end up in a scrap I'd much rather be cool and calm and cool it's, f- it's funny because I never fight when I'm angry no 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 I'm actually laughing Fuck that. that's what scared me but um, yeah I, there's two rules never fight when you're drunk or when you're angry no because you make the biggest fucking mistakes you're ever going to make pi- one miss man I oh man that's why well take uh, we right. talked about McGregor earlier when he fights he's stone cold there's nothing yeah if you if you if you miss by a half inch you break your hand yeah. on the wall you you know it's like that you know so yeah I try very hard and and sadly I know my capabilities because mm. I had to do them mm. I, I, I'm horrified by the shit I had to do believe me I am and what it teaches me is to respect my abilities a lot of people don't respect their ability to hurt others mm. They have no idea how their words or their deeds can really destroy someone because they don't respect it. You know what I mean? But I respect mine because I've seen what it done. So I don't want no more. And so now, essentially, what you're doing is kind of putting that to good use because, you know, you're going around speaking to people. You're you're writing a, another book. Mm. And and you've got another TV series coming. Yeah, yeah? that's you want to tell wonderful. About that? Well, I I'm be, I've been whatever you're allowed to, to say. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the television show is going to be called Dead Man Talking, and uh, it, I'll be the narrator of it. I also have a major motion film uh, development project going in Los Angeles right now, and I'm going out there on the 11th. Next week, me and the missus go to Hamburg, Germany, and do uh, more television. We've just been to Germany. It's lovely. Yeah. I like it. I'm, I, I'm going to do uh, professional speaking all over the United Kingdom and the world, too. And I like that. I want to go back out there because I believe that as long as I throw out a positive energy, I can lay my head on the pillow at night. I'm doing my part until I cannot uh, find relevance to it. So my plan is over the next four to five years to go around speaking, uh, finish my writing, and then retire as a teacher and then just focus on my children and my love. Sounds like a good plan to me, mate. With with regards to the documentary, because it's so well constructed, you know, it's, it's... it's part of that genre where you sort of think, oh, someone's been given a very low budget to go and sit in, sit in a room with someone, 
do a very long interview and then put a few cutaways over the top. And it's actually a great return for Netflix, you know, because they've got a few interviews and, and a, a movie few cost over pictures. a million dollars to make. But the point is, yeah. you, you're, you're, it's very unusual because you're thrown into that genre and it strikes you as very different to every other murder That's documentary. That's what I love. I love the fact that even people saying, hey, if you love making of a murderer, watch Fear of 13, when in reality, it's nothing like it. Yeah. Well, it is totally different. Right. And the, the one with the girl in Italy, I can't remember what her name is, but oh, I watched that recently. Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox. Yeah. That's a very different documentary, which leaves you with a very different feeling. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's, yeah. a, it's very, the, literally the opposite. But to, yeah. some, you know I mean? but to some extent, it made me think differently about your documentary because in the first place, you don't sit there and say, I'm an innocent man. You know, there's, there's no... It's not relevant to the story. Exactly. But I with her, that. it's t- it, she never says, oh, well, to some extent she does, but she doesn't protest her innocence. She kind of, she has a similar, not a similar demeanor to you, but it's as if she's trying to achieve a similar demeanor to yeah, you. Yeah, I saw that. Well, Amanda met me a few years ago. I think she's picked up a little bit from me. Good on her. Well, yeah. I think that's wonderful. I think that is good that she's learned from me how to well, try and do it. A it did seem way. that she was, she wasn't as innocent as but, you. But, it, but well, I mean, <laughs> without not as innocent, I'm I mean, not, not at all. Yet. But it, it does, in my opinion, it elicits a different emotion. And right. so, I know what you mean. And uh, all right, so from my perspective, is this: God help us if. Um, if I got that wrong, that's my idea. Like God help me if I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying everything I can in my right now to do everything right. I hope that that's the same as others that's gone through this. And so when you first set out to make the documentary, in watching the final, in watching it now, say you were to go on, we went on Netflix now and watched it together. Was that what you set out to achieve when you look back at it? I, I asked only one thing. I wanted to be back in my cell. I wanted you to meet the man I was on death row. Mm. Mm. That's the guy who could sit there and calm composure, invite you in so I could tell you my story, not be the question and answer folly of an interview. I wanted to tell you my story, to, to bring you to me, to, to like look you in the eye and then bring you closer and say, this is what it was. And I like that. I, I, I thought that was so good. When it does do the cutaways as well, it, it's very much dreamlike. It's almost like we're going through your imagination. An and not and, a detraction. Yeah, yeah I like and, that. It's and, incredible how long shots remain out of focus in this documentary. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or remain... Because the Semi. funny thing is, they're not actually out of focus. They're perfectly in focus for it's, the way you want to achieve It's deliberate. It. But you're watching it, and I was sat there, and there's one bit where you... Desc- it's when you're describing the murder which you didn't do. And the the detail which you describe it in is incredible in the first place because you think, well, this this man's clearly done his research to know what he didn't do. Do you know what I mean? And you're watching it and you're watching one long, very slow tracking shot where the focus is on the ground. And, and his shoes. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it's a very striking moment. It is. I think that they chose well, especially with the shower scenes at the end. The yeah, that was on. the bit that stuck out for me with yeah, the chair really. and, the, and the water falling. And it down. actually happened as it did, man. The dude, what I didn't get to tell in the documentary was true. Was after I spoke to my lawyer, I called my mom mm. and told her about the evidence and the results. And she said, "Nick, I can't celebrate right now. Your brother's having a, uh, a seizure and he has to be rushed to the hospital." And I couldn't say right at that moment, I was about to lose my other brother because my younger brother had already died. And I was like, ah, and so I just broke down, man. And the guard literally, man, his hand was trembling when he held me because it could be a trick at any time. It's a terrible ordeal they go through. But he was holding me there and he just sat me down in the chair 
and he smashed that button and it goes on for 15 minutes on a whack. He whacked it as hard as he could and then just said, go ahead, man, let it out. So I waited literally 15 years to that point to let anything out because of the DNA testing. And the thing is, my lawyers didn't believe me. My lawyers at one point said, man, I got to tell you something, man. Great we, lawyer. Yeah. We think you're the, the craziest bastard ever because we thought, you know, you were actually guilty and asking for DNA. But here you are. You're actually innocent. And I was like, get off the phone, man. I ain't got time for that. You must have been probably not recommend that lawyer to anyone else. <laughs> yeah. And well, I mean, a, you know what? No. And the guy's a brilliant lawyer. The only problem was he just didn't believe in me. So what do I make it personal and say he's a shit lawyer? Well, did he get you off in the end? Well, he didn't really use his hand that well. You, oh, yeah. you mean the DNA got yeah. me off? Yeah, I got off on DNA. I'm, <laughs> all right, I'm making jokes. But no, it, it was his office and the federal defender's office that did all the work to help me get the DNA testing from that judge yeah. that ordered it. Because so it's, essentially, I'm grateful. Yeah, you can call him a, a good lawyer in that sense. Not every lawyer has to believe the person they're with. They're doing a yeah. job, essentially, aren't they? Look, you know, they're a father. Right. Doing the only thing that hurt me was... In order for me to get DNA testing, I had to go through a battery of psychological tests in which they made me out to be mentally off for asking for the... They, that was their hope. It skewed in the first place to try and find you as mentally ill, essentially. <laughs> so they were trying, because all along I never challenged my sentence. I said, look, I didn't do it, so it doesn't matter if you execute me. And the, and the court, by law, makes you file a challenge by asking for mercy from the death penalty by saying you did it. And I said, no, I'm not filing an appeal then. Mm. No, I'm not going to ask for mercy for something I didn't do as part of my appeal. My lawyers say, well, then you have to go through a psychological battery of tests or we're not going to pay for the DNA testing. What was that like? Fun. Why? Six years of psychology I studied. So I sat down and I hit it perfectly. I didn't take it personal that I was being attacked like this. I did everything I could to show that I had a well-balanced mind and I was doing everything with a well-balanced mind instead of being insulted by it. Mm. And he looked at me and the one psychiatrist said, dude, you like you could be like on a lecturer level in the university and all that. And I said, I will be. And he goes, oh my God, you might be crazy. I said, oh, you never know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was strange that my own lawyers had to put me through a battery of psychological tests. So I got three separate uh, psych tests that says I'm absolutely batshit crazy. Aren't we all? Yeah. Because, but essentially, you know, to some extent, everyone is on the, the crazy scale, aren't they? And, oh, and I, you know, I imagine if we were put through well, those what's tests. What's the definition of insanity? The re same repeated behavior with an expectation of an outcome yeah. that's different. I know a few people well, who own companies who do that. That just describes you waking up every morning. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's insanity, right? Yeah. Life is crazy. And it's the same as it's life. It's a great saying, yeah. right? Yeah. Life is crazy. So what do you do? Well, Try to take from it the meaningful, the good, and then pass it on to the young. That's what you were designed for biologically. When you stop being in torment with your biology, you start getting along with your body better. You know, you think you're in charge because you're bright. You think you run things. But if your body decides to shut down, not a thought in your world is going to tell you to stop. Yeah. You could tell yourself, stop having a heart attack. Stop having, no, ain't going to happen. Stop hurting leg. Stop hurting. Your brain has no effect, but your body owns you and will control every part of you. Make your mind bright. Make your mind dimmed. Everything. So I am a biological creature who was designed to come here and further my species. The sooner I get on with accepting that, the less ego I have about myself. It's true. Mm. Was there anything else that you didn't see 
in the documentary that you maybe would have liked to have talked about, or is there anything that people should know? Can I also ask, how long did it take you to originally shoot? So how long did you interview for, and how long have you cut it down to? I think that's key as well in that. 22 hours of uh, filming over two days. Mm. Wow. So two 11-hour bouts. It's a bit like a trip away. <laughs> with, with, with no questions, though. That's what I think people need to understand. It was That's just you... Sitting there, how, how did All you All right, I worked with a woman named Sarah Kinsella, who is a very good producer, and I made her learn my story. Then she came up with a bunch of stories for David Sinkton. Um, to who was put, the director. Right. And what it was is more of a reminder of mm-hmm. where we want to go next. Tell us this part now. <coughs> and actually, the whole musical parts came because I wanted to show the 10 songs that really ruled my life. And when I started to tell the story of Wesley and Butch, it became so important for everyone to know how I got such inspiration from these men about love. And I wanted someone to care about me in hell so much, man. I didn't care who it would have been. Just someone to care about me would have meant something because I saw how much it meant to them. And I loved that. So you couldn't have asked me any question to make me tell that story the way I did. I had to tell it in my way. Mm. And that, that's quite obviously that comes through quite evidently in the documentary. Mm. And the one part that I didn't get to tell in the documentary that I, I like telling is that at one point I was considered so dangerous because so many men loved me. So many of my brothers on death row that I helped when their mom was dying or I helped with their legal work or something. At one point, they had a hunger strike when they were mistreating me at the end. And mm. the, the guards came to me and said, boy, you one of the most dangerous men we got. I said, men are willing to kill for you because of our mistreatment of you. That makes you very dangerous to us. Some people have said the same about me or me subscribers. So, mm. you know, they'd kill for me. <laughs> that was a cheesy soundbite. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it's sort of from, from the outside... How do you live your life now? A, a lot of people must treat you in the way that you become a subject or you become this interview. How do you feel about that side? None of it's relevant because um, every day I go out, I try my best to be an upbeat, positive person. And I love going in the petrol station down in uh, Ilchester, making the ladies light up with a smile. Yeah. Every time I meet someone, I'm focused on what I'm doing then and there for my own healing by being a nice person. Mm. I started off with my promise to my mom and I made it my mantra. And from there on, man, I ain't got time for nothing else. And I'll tell you what, it's given me so much less stress. You wouldn't believe that a year ago, literally right now, I was living on the streets, man. A homeless bum. Here I am now, top king of the world again. Did you, One thing I assumed was that you'd get compensation for being wrongly convicted. Nope. There are no compensation laws in Pennsylvania for wrongly convicting someone and sentencing them to die. But if you've been, if it happened in another state, Texas gives you eighty thousand dollars for a year, for life. So you could have been almost a million. You would have been a millionaire, just, over, well, just just under a millionaire. Yeah, yeah, from eighty grand a year for life for the last twelve, thirteen years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. unbelievable. But I would, I don't want their pity money in that way. I want to earn it. That's why I'm so proud of the the fact that I transitioned my education in prison to be a brilliant writer and a great person to work with in the fields of media because that's what I now have a purpose from. Look, Pablo Picasso said, the meaning of your life is to find your gift 
and the purpose of your life is to give that gift away. That's what I'm doing, man. And the rest is just bullshit. What stage do you think you're at personally? When you look at yourself in the mirror, you know, when you, you talk about taking a step back. Yeah, I got a up. long way to go. I got a long way to go. I have to lose some more anger. I have to learn how to be even more pious and humble. And I'm not done trying my best to be as loving as I possibly can to my partner. Well, yeah, because even though you're Satya and you're giving us the message that you really want to portray and that you want to put across, I'm sure that even now you still have moments where you're like, I'm angry about I don't sure know, I get, one little thing. I get all that, mm-hmm. but then I have the shortest fuse to healing, not the shortest fuse to anger like I used to have. Yeah, I have the way. shortest fuse going back. I'm the first one to sweetly say to my missus, I'm sorry, babe. I made a joke with her the other night, like I was just playing with her and she got hurt by it. And I was like, oh, babe, I'm so sorry. I went on for like five minutes apologizing mm-hmm. instead of being that asshole who would have went on five minutes complaining because she got it wrong. So, look, I feel anger. I, I go through ups. I go through downs. Like I said, only a month and a half ago, as I sit here next year on January 6th, my daughter died, man. I went through all of it. But I have the shortest fuse back to being healthy because I know I'm a loving person. That's where I want to go back to. The only thing I ever say to anyone is this. I don't care what I got to go through. No one's taking my kindness from me. I work too hard for it. No one's taking it from me. It's very rare that you'd meet someone who'd speak that way about being nice to people. Isn't it? Short fuse to kindness. Just in general. Like so he, he, he treats it like it's a possession. Whereas, because he's had to keep it hold of it for so long, it's been so hard to stay nice because you were in a an environment that bred uh, the, the winner as the most badass, evil motherfucker there. So to be the opposite of that is a very difficult thing to That is to the achieve. strongest person there. The People often mistake be- kindness for weakness. The but most it- beautiful person in the room has the kindest heart because they care for everyone else who ain't like them. I agree with you. Yeah, man. I believe that. I believe that the reason that I am designed the way that I am is because I am actually a very kind person to myself and to everyone around me, and it's given me so much healing. I bet there's a lot of people listening to this right now, because I know I'm doing it, thinking, I could probably be a bit more like this guy. I'll think a little bit more along those lines. I think you are a lot more like me than you are, but you just have... To recognize that your biological brain hasn't developed to the point mine is. I'm 55. I'm hitting 56. Every seven years, you have a brand new body. Every seven, you can see it, seven-year-old, 14-year-old, 21, mm-hmm. 28. Every seven years, you have a brand new brain. What you're not seeing is in the next realm, your brain will change. My brain works quite a lot like yours. Like The way you speak is a lot like the way I think. Feel. Yeah, and it's changing better now, isn't it? But it just takes me longer to go from anger to being nice again yeah. i'm definitely a lot better when when i was 20 oh, it took me fucking forever to be yeah. nice to someone after i got pissed off at them and i'm i'm getting a lot better at saying to people i'm sorry like it used to take me fucking days to say sorry yeah. now it takes me an well, hour what you're doing is healing your brain mm. just the moment you start giving in to saying yo i'm sorry man i'm a better person than that mm. you're healing yourself I'm fuck them but isn't it? no this is really important whether or not they get it mm-hmm. or they accept it or nothing, don't worry about that. Worry about yourself. Because right at that moment, you're doing yourself this huge service. You're helping yourself. I think the best thing I've done for myself is um, not become, Close not up. let my ego get in the way of life. Because like, a lot of the time, I used to be too proud to be the one to come back and say sorry. But 
now, even if I actually do think I'm in the right, I'll still say sorry sometimes because I just think life's too fucking short to be angry at each other. No, just, well, how about this? Instead of thinking it like that, because that's a hard thought that gets you, right? How about this? I want to be better sooner. So I'm not letting you poison me with that shit. I'm letting it go. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm very, very sorry. I will never do it again. <laughs> you know why? Because I'm now feeling like I got the smile out mm-hmm. of it. I know I didn't do nothing. And I got that person to feel like, ooh, better check myself. Mm-hmm. So, all right, it comes down to a series of lessons. Big man, the one lesson I love about you right now, you know your anger is poison. You try and step away oh, from I, it. I had, a, I had a point in my life um, where I hated someone. I, I actually hated them. And when I mean, a lot of people go, oh, I hate them. No, real hate Vicious. is when you take time out of your day when you're just driving somewhere or you're eating something or you're doing something totally unrelated to anything and you have a think about that person, not because there's anything that's triggered it, <laughs> because you hate that cunt yeah. and you really want them to die or whatever. That to me is true hate. And, it, and, it, and I realised, I was like, oh, this is really fucking um, dominating me. It's getting a hold of us. And that cunt's probably sitting there chilling out, having a cup of somewhere, not thinking about me. And I'm actively really hating them and getting like in a bad mood and in a bad place here's your hate yeah. so yeah I just had to you can drink all of it and kill yourself but, but basically I realised that it wasn't good it. for us and yeah, I, I would never know it one, once, I, once I got a grips with that and I was like you know what it is I just need to you know when you said just let them go and just nothing I, it's not I hate you or I love you it's I nothing you yeah, I nothing dismissed. you it's not good it's not bad it's nothing Try and once it. I man- managed to get a hold of that it made me feel a fuck ton better yep all right, the other thing is, too, like, we, we attach so much importance to what people think about us. They ain't even thinking about us. <clears throat> you're sitting there in your s- s- everyday life, and you're so convinced that these people are thinking this about you. They ain't even got, you don't know what the hell they're thinking. Mm-hmm. But that pain that you cause yourself is so negative that you end up making yourself sick with it of what people think of you. Like you said, you don't give a F about what someone thinks about you. But we do. So the way around that is, really, seriously, let yourself have a really good thought about yourself in that moment. I'm learning, like, whenever I've been down by someone else negatively, like I found out someone, because they didn't know me, they wouldn't expect that I was the kind of person that was doing something nice for another person, so they badmouthed me to that person. And I got upset by it. So you know what I did? I went back to the person they said that to, and I said, I'm sorry that they said that to you, and they upset you, and I hope that you can forgive them. He said, what? But they were talking shit about you. I said, yeah, but it hurt you. It didn't hurt me. So I hope you can let them be forgiven in my instance. Mm -hmm. And they were like, wow, man, why are you doing that? I said, because I don't want them to hurt either one of us. With your thoughts, that's just going to make us ugly. One thing I think that's good that Nick does, mm-hmm. um, which some people don't think is a good idea anymore for whatever reason, is you pat yourself on the back when you do something good. And, like, I don't know why, but in, in this society we're in now, it's like, oh, you're bigging yourself up. But what I tend, I'm in a really bad habit of I never, ever say well done to myself. Like, if I do anything good, I'll just say... Oh, I've got to do the next thing. Like I, I have like five seconds, and then I'm on to like, what's my next challenge or what's my next ever, goal? Do you ever find that really interesting though? Because I, um, I was thinking about this from a sort of a historical perspective. If you go back through history, the Romans struggle with it, the Greeks struggle with it. You know, the the 
the, I think it's the Greek story of Narcissus. It's such an interesting story about the guy who loved his own reflection mm. and hated other people praising his achievements and how beautiful he was and all those sort of things. And I think so many people, I don't want to get too sort of philosoph- philosophical, but... Do what you want. A lot of people do go down that route of... You the know, big they, I am. Yeah. And it's well, it, it's been a problem for okay. thousands of years. I understand that, but... Mine isn't like that. No, and I'm not trying and, to say and, it no, is. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. People are so frightened of being that right. way. Hmm. But I always do it this way. I always think, if I don't try and help myself feel good about myself, no one else is going to be able to help me. And I had to do it in prison. So I also look at it this way. I try to see it as if, if you were my best friend, I would say this to you. So I want to say it. Hmm. So I, I talk to myself like I'm my best friend. I'm not trying to be superstar but i am badass in life because i made it this far so why shouldn't i feel badass that's that's not um and i'm I'm giving you credit for that don't think i'm not what i'm trying to say is i think i could do with being more like that because i was brought up in an area and i know i joke on about it but i was brought up in an area where like everyone was poor and like people would regularly knock on the door to ask if they could have a bag of sugar or like people just didn't have shit. Could, could someone ask me mum to borrow the dress for a night out? If me mum barely even knew these people, do you know what I mean? And if you had anything, you probably should just shut the fuck up about it. Like, yeah, uh, so, uh, so the more humble you are, the more you fly under the radar because you don't want to become this, this guy who thinks he, and I've carried that on. Like, don't be a big time Charlie. Mm-hmm. Don't get us wrong. I put myself out there because this is how YouTube works. You've got to promote yourself. But in my mind, I never ever think, Oh, I tell you what, like, I'm, I'm this or I'm that. I'm, Cause the minute you feel like that, well, that's people, a shame because people I from think, my area will like think, who the fuck does he think he yeah, is? But, like, yeah, but that's a shame because I think you did a brilliant day today, impressing me with who you were, handling yourself here. You did a brilliant podcast, and I, I'm feeling good about it because I think you did so well. I know I did well. I told my story well, so I'm not going out there and saying I'm like this. But I am one of the finest speakers of my genre today, and I'm a very good writer, and I love that about myself because I know I earned it. You know, all the years that I put work into it, I earned that right to feel that way. But I don't have a big ego about what that means for me. I, th- I think there's a happy medium is what I'm trying yeah, to get across. I th- and I think we could all do with praising ourselves a little bit more without letting it get out of control. Fair enough. Because some p- people like me have a fear of, oh, if I praise myself, um, I'll instantly get a big ego and then I'll get lazy and then I'll stop making any effort. No. And It's just your mind runs away with itself out of fear. How are we, how we always telling kids to be self-confident mm. while we're not allowed to do it. Mm. I think more people should. It's not I, fair. I, I think you've managed to get a really good balance between being self-assured and giving yourself respect that you deserve without becoming an overconfident, cocky, arrogant person. Yes, sir. And I and, and I think the way that I do that is by first and foremost being a, a, a meticulously polite and exceptionally kind. So that people see that even though I hold myself with a lot of self-respect, I don't project myself with a lot of loudness and outwardness that is unfair to them. Mm -hmm. Go about it with your self-respect at the forefront, with your kindness leading it. No one can knock you back, man. So what brought you to England? Because that's obviously a really big shift. Yeah, I came over here to speak to uh, the parliament. So I was only 10 months out of prison. I was invited to speak before Her Majesty's combined session of the lower house of commons. Mm. And I 
decided, man, England was so different than America. Go. Philadelphia, 275 murders a year. All of England, not even 275 murders a year by gunshot. So, yeah, I'm out of it. And what do you make of, I mean, you've been here for I'm an Anglophyte. No, I I love England. My grandmother was Irish. My grandfather was England. Um, This is one of the oldest continuums of a society on our planet, over 1,200 years. It has a uniqueness to it that it's been so long in development a lot of the social problems in a frontier nation, America, are well beyond it. I like living in the West Country. I love uh, the language. I love the the sense of the word fair play. I think that's England through and through. And yeah, it's got social issues. It's got poverty. It's got problems with its politics. But still, it's so much better than the United States in terms of giving me separation from my past. And so when you go back across to L.A., uh, do you sort of hold that? You, you, do you get excited to go to LA? Yeah, yeah. I do. I love it because I'm going to enjoy uh, the best parts of America without the stigma. I don't have to worry about a long, prolonged period <laughs> on the ground of getting shot because I was shot already. And I know it's, people don't understand. It took me a year to walk. You know, it takes a long time to recover from gunshot. It's not like in a TV show where a detective has a bandage. Takes you it know, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so I don't, I don't know. I, I want to retire. It's crazy. I have an idea of retiring to Ireland and become a teacher. Like everybody's thinking. Imagine having him as a teacher. That would be brilliant. And not know anything about me. I would love it. That's the best bit. Yeah. It's maybe not knowing that backstory and therefore having to always repeat that. Right. Because I saw this. I have a really relevant image right now. People see the fear of 13 and they have this really nice image of a man in his prime telling his story and leaving a nice image. I don't want to be the 75-year-old version of that and ruin it. So I think it's fair that I do this for five years and then I go and teach myself a certificate of education, pass it myself, and then teach children empowerment through social studies. That's my goal. What's your interaction with America like? Because obviously you've been through the justice system, uh, twisted justice system, you've been through the prison system. Do you ever think of going back there and talking to Congress there or talking to anyone? I because lived there for two years, didn't I, just yeah. recently? Yeah, I went back to America. I dealt with it. And for me, um, I don't see myself as a person who's in the efforts of a social change. My idea mm-hmm. is to use my art to create some books and leave a very lingering message and then follow my biology. See, this is what drives me crazy. We laugh at the poor salmon for swimming up that stream. But we're doing the same thing. Mm. We are designed to put forth our species as best we can, biologically or emotionally. I'm I'm going to go do that. Because that's the less, loudest lessons I've message I got from God in prison was this. <laughs> go and spread your good. And the only one who's the best filter for that are children. So I want to go spread my good. Yeah. You were talking about earlier about the development of the children and how language and words can affect that as well. Is that something is you do you think all these little things you're picking up along the way that you're picking these up and you're going to take that into your teaching? Yeah, that's what I want to do. I, I want to actually use a very simple way to make children respond to learning to develop talking in a social setting. So sociology 101 is teaching children, I think, how to be good citizens. 
And the best citizen is someone who is not projecting outwardly to hurt others, but is trying to learn, learn, learn. So that's my hope. And do you think you're still on that journey in that sense? I am. I'm always going to be the first one to tell you I'm as ignorant as dirt when it comes to religion. Although I've read every one of the world's religions, I'm still ignorant. I believe that I am energy. So the one thing I believe in more than anything is E equals MC squared. I am energy and I am projecting my energy. I'm developing my energy and I'm trying to become beautiful in the process. That's it. It was interesting earlier to hear you talk about the the use of voice uh, with kids. I think it would be interesting if you, I don't know, I know this is sort of a lame question, but you were talking a little bit about that. We almost got into it and then I literally stopped you and said, no, save it for the podcast. <laughs> well, one of the things that I studied was um, how language affects us. And if you've ever held a young child in your arms and you said, I love you in a low rumbling voice as a man, you could see the child react to it. And one of the things I learned is that we are really empowered by words. There are no frivolous words. When you talk down to yourself, you're making yourself lower, believe me. But the manner in which you say certain things truly has an effect on others. And I believe that children are the greatest receptors to love in that way because they're not complicated enough to be filtered for it. So choose your words wisely for how you say them and what you say in the timing of saying them because you can really empower others, man. You could be so beautiful for someone if you just speak nicely to them. Mate, you can fucking, uh, you can speak for England if you want. I mean, you're from here, but I think we should hire him just no, to be I, our representative. I really appreciate that. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go out and try and be as nice as I can and hope for the best. Mm. I have no expectations, and I think that's what sets us up. I have a world of hope, and I am so upbeat and positive, but I have no expectations. Yeah. Do you think expectations that we all have just about everyday life and about what life crushes you? It, yeah, it sets you up for a fall yeah. pretty instantly. I think. What did I do for you? I did everything for you, and this is the treatment you give me. Well, why were you doing it? You expected something. Mm-hmm. Don't cry about not getting it. That's what I'm learning. That's my biggest one lately. So I have no expectations. I just do the things that I do because I'm a good person and I expect nothing back for mm-hmm. them but my own healing. And I love that. We've got some Twitter questions. Do we really? We have, actually. I put, okay. some, I put it out. and uh, Okay, fair enough. Definitely well. interested. But the couple of things that I've written down that I wanted to ask you about. Do you have any regrets on yes. your life? Yes. That I wasn't kinder sooner. Because I remember people now that I treated like I was a, I was a complete asshole to them, and it still bothers me. Mm. So I wish I was kinder sooner. That's my one big regret so far. I wish I tapped into this long ago. Well, I think it's always just be grateful that you got there eventually, yeah? Nope. No, don't do that, because I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm going to keep right on now, trying to be even kinder. Do you think if you if you just felt that way, that maybe you'd slip back into that habit? Are you a bit worried about that? Yep. Yeah. Take it for granted. Mm. Clearly, you're also quite an emotional person as well. Emotionally intelligent, but also very open about your emotions. How do you think that sort of... It, because when we're talking to you, you're not the normal sort of person you talk to. Do you know what I mean? I know what you How mean. How well do you think that plays for you? I think it plays very well because I'm very in touch with who I am emotionally, mentally, and more important, intellectually. 
And I think that's where a lot of your emotions come from, the intellectual side of really having the nuance of a thought. Too many people aren't in touch with actually who they are. And we've, we've had this discussion uh, about finding yourself a few times on the podcast. We haven't really gotten into it completely. But if you're sitting in a cell for 20 years, well, you're probably going to find yourself if you do enough thinking. And it's definitely... I actually describe you. it in the film. I was finally yeah. comfortable with myself. I, and I love that bit because yeah. it, it, I've had that moment, but in a totally different way where I was like, this is who I am. And yeah. and, and, I, and I knew that I wasn't going to grow that much more from that point onwards because I'd... I really grasped it, and uh, I really like that bit. Yeah, it's it's a hard part for a lot of people to come to conclusions. Some that, people never get there. Yeah, angst is the one thing that drives us mad, ain't it? Well, another thing is fear. I think because you're so emotionally um, mature and you're just at the point where, you know, I'm going to be emotional, I'm going to say what I want to say, I'm going to say what's really on my mind. Uh, me and Lawrence are growing up in a generation where if you act like that and you are just... Twitter will hammer you, uh, the comments will hammer you. Like you can't act like that in our in our generation, really, because you're leaving yourself vulnerable, and people are scared to be vulnerable. But you aren't. No, because I understand my strength doesn't come from my physicality. My strength comes from my kindness, mm. my politeness. This makes me exceedingly strong to withstand any thoughts like that because mm. I'm being nice to myself to ignore it. I've got my one question that I'd like Go to ahead. ask you is how do you want to be remembered? Ah, I want to be remembered as having a purposeful life despite the chaos. I want to re be remembered as being one of the most loving persons someone could have met. That's my goal with my children and stuff and my love. Like, I want people to say, oh my God, he was such a nice person to me. Every time I saw him, he made me feel so good about himself. But I think considering what you've been through, I think most people do have that. Impression what I give anyway. Every oh my day. god, <laughs> like, that's pretty much what I thought. Like I always do. And from the day. moment I got in contact with you, it, it, I had a, a good feeling about it. Like it was, I, I seen this Netflix show, and I was like, it said at the end. Then he moved to England. And I'm like, Perfect. oh yeah, yeah. Did he? All right, I'll be getting in contact then. And me, um, you being an absolute gentleman uh, from the first second I got in contact with. So you've definitely had that impression on me. Well, that's, I think that's what you want. You want to develop a calling card in life for yourself. Mm. Mine, you couldn't meet a nicer, more polite mm. and respectful person in how they speak to you. Well, we've got Twitter questions, so I'll ask them for you. Um, what are your thoughts on the Stephen Avery case shown on Netflix in Making a Murder? I mean, without going on for hours, because we can't, it's a, it's a massive case. Haven't watched it. I've lived it. Don't need to watch it. Yeah. Right. Honest. Never watched a minute of it. I, I, I don't think you really need to put yourself back there, do you? I lived it. How many people from your family believed you were innocent and how many thought you were guilty? Um, the majority of all of them knew I was innocent because I was home with them, but my one sister had doubts because she wasn't home. Mm. So for years, she developed a hatred of me. And when I got out of prison, she said, Nicky, man, I've been hating you for 20 years. I can't stop. I don't think I can. I said, that's cool. At least she gave me my respect to tell me to my face. Can, can wow. I sort of follow up with a question about that? How did, um, there must have been people for a while, like you say, the guards treated you differently when they found out you were innocent. You must go through different stages in prison. When you first get in, everyone's convinced you're guilty. You know, then there's that kind of period where everyone sort of forgets the guilt. You essentially become a human in a sense. Right. And then there's the time where you say, oh, actually, I'm innocent. Right. Does, do the guards, in, as soon as you start saying, I'm innocent, do the guards instantly start treating you differently? 
or is it the time does it have to be proven you're innocent it more more proof than anything i had a guard break down on me in front of my door one day said nick i can't go home man i'm having struggles because every time i see you in the cell it breaks my heart because you're innocent because mm. he was handling my meal my mail for me and he knew about my efforts to prove my innocence and I told him in a very brusque and nasty manner, back the hell up from my door, stop acting like a child, because he had a duty to be a professional and take care of his family, not get caught up in this emotional shit and get away from me. So I actually loved him enough to be hard on him mm. so he wouldn't be vulnerable to the guy who wasn't like me. Mm. It's like what you were saying earlier, stop being a bitch and be a family man first. Yeah, you can't be both, man. I mean, you got <laughs> you got to really step up, right? Mm. Yeah. The next question is, uh, what was the first thought you had when you got sentenced initially? Uh, I was so angry that I kept saying to myself, you can't even look me in the eye. The judge couldn't look me in the eye. He put his head down, man. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You can't even look me in the eye. That was what I was thinking. Because they knew they had screwed me. I had a three-day murder trial. Three day long. 20 years old. And then you can't even look me in the face and you're about to sentence me to die. That's what my, that's what my first thought was. You're not the first person I've heard say that about a sentence. I did watch an interview with Tupac. And he actually said that to the judge when they sentenced him at one point. He said, you've never looked me in the eye once. We've been on a three-day trial. Yeah. And this is, you're not showing me any respect. You're not show, like, do you know, like you went on a big run. Um, he wasn't there. Uh, he was just a face. He wasn't even there. Yeah. I, f I watched a documentary the other day about a judge uh, called Cash for Kids, which is also on Netflix. Pennsylvania judge. They gave him 27 years. He <sighs> was sentenced to June. I know. That's that, where I come from. I mean, that shocked the shit out of me. Basically, yeah, this, this judge was getting a kickback every time he sent a, a, a kid to a juvenile 5, prison. Five thousand juveniles to over like five hundred years of prison. Yeah, he was he was handing out ridiculous sentences for being found with a stolen bike, even if you didn't steal a bike. He has four years. I mean, that's to, part that's part of the American justice system. It's fucking, well, this is part of, no, it's part of the privatization that's yeah, exactly. ruined all of prisons. Well, we uh, need to do it here in England. You can't. Well, wait, prisons man, becoming an industry. You break the law, you go pay. Your crime, you pay for your crime to society by being in prison. No, nowadays you go to G4S security and be a commodity for them. Yeah. You're not paying for your crime. That's, uh, man, I'm sorry, P private prisons have ruined all of it. Yeah, well, yeah. it said at the end of the documentary, uh, it costs about 10 grand to educate a child and it costs 88 grand a year to incarcerate one. Yeah. It's fucking insane. And sadly, that's become part of the American justice system. Yep. It's ingrained itself. They're now getting away from the privatization of prisons, though, so good. Go ahead, next. Although it's the opposite in Britain right now, let's just say that. I know, it's a shame. That's why we're having riots and everything, because somebody Teresa. from G4S is getting paid. Yep. <laughs> yes, Teresa. Um... What uh, what did you miss most about the outside world when being locked up? Food. Yeah, the food pretty shit, was it, mate? Yeah, man, it was hard, man. Um, what was your standard meal inside? Oh, see, I after a while, I, d I developed a barter system where I I lived off of tuna fish, peanut butter, and non-prison food. Like, I wouldn't eat the prison food because it almost killed me twice. Peanut butter's decent, though, isn't it? So it's tuna like, fish. Quite, quite partial, yeah. the old so, tuna. Yeah, I would, I would make all my own foods and stuff as best I could. Sorry, I'm just in a lot of pain. Okay. We can stop for a bit if you want, mate. You want to take a, a little break? No, I have to go to the toilet, too, yeah. for a yeah, second, sure, so let me pee. Take your time. How did you feel the moment you were released? Wow. Um, <laughs> they botched my release, man. 
They Fuck told me. Can they get anything right? I know. They told Jesus. me at 7.30 in the morning I was going home, put me in a van, drove me up through the fucking first barrier. I go through the next barrier. Dude waves his hand, sticks the phone out the window, says, take him back. Paperwork ain't ready. Oh, my fucking I'm God. like, you gotta be kidding me. Drove me back through the prison and made me wait another five hours, right? I sit in there and they finally let me out and I walk up and I go to hug my dad and he's tiny. He shrunk. Well, because he's old age and I, yeah. Yeah, he's in his 70s now, man. This was a roofer, worked all his life on a roof, you know. And all of a sudden, I'm like, he's small, you know. And my mom's small and then everything was frozen cold. So I walked up to the microphones outside the prison and I said... With the press there waiting. Yeah, I said, Walter Ograd and Ernie Simmons are two good friends of mine who are innocent in the prison behind me. Can someone come help them now? I turned around and walked out. I didn't say shit. Killed them. Yeah, because they were waiting for me. Oh, they were waiting for the Hollywood moment. Yeah. yeah. Especially in America. They love that. Yeah. This is the the point you're supposed to go and give them the the sound bite. Right then and there. He said, no, I'm saving that for the True Jody podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What what happened with those guys? Uh, Ernie's out. Uh, and my friend Walter uh, is supposed to have um, Death Row Stories in America do his uh, story next. Wow. So hopefully I get Jobs for the boys. But I kept my wor- <laughs> kept, yeah, I kept my word to my boys though, didn't I? I met two men who were innocent and I said, don't worry. As soon as I get out, I'll start fighting for you. So I started a huge fight for my two friends by going to five European countries and starting an economic embargo against Pennsylvania. Wow. And stopping them from getting investments from shipbuilders and Smith Klein Glaxo here in America and England. Oh yeah, I caused all kind of trouble because I looked at my friends and said, "Look, I'm going home, but I'll be back for you." Yeah, I mean, for saying there's a butterfly effect, you're a fucking huge butterfly. This <laughs> is an eagle. You know, yeah, yeah. Got some good wings these <laughs> yeah. days, boy. Yeah, I'm trying, and I hope that my effect is good because I want somebody listening to this podcast who's had some really dirty, low shit done to them understand that it ain't you, man. And you really need to really be nice to yourself now, and you need to care about yourself. And the only person you need to believe in is you. Don't look for me to be your inspiration. You need to be your own inspiration, man. And I I, I love you, even though I don't know you, because I've been down like you. And I just want you to just try to be a nice person and don't let nobody take that from you. If you can do that, you'd be the most beautiful person you could ever imagine yourself to be, man. Just like me. Did you have any issues with adjusting to life, to the outside world after being in prison so long? The only thing I hated was everybody was so quick to get angry, ain't they? And it's like they shout the most horrible things at each other and then they go make a cup of tea for each other. Kind of by this side. So the only thing that bothered me was everybody was fake with their anger or they was fake and all Passive along. aggressive. Yeah, like I ain't like that, man. If you tell me you're going to bust me in the face, bust me in the face and see what happens. But don't tell me you're going to bust me in the face then, then, then we're cool and we're going to go sit and hang out together and, you know, we're all right. No, I took you at your word. So it's like I had to learn that everybody out here has a frivolous factor or they're squandering their lives with anger. So, Do you think because the repercussions are so much more real in, inside that people are more careful with their words? And it's a, it's a, but that's it, the, because that's you're getting a, it out in actual fights. That's a falsity. The repercussions are more out here. 
You think so? I'd get away with beating somebody up in prison all day long. They were going to take my TV off me, mm. put me in a cell for 30 days with no books or something. But, but out here, but, but, I got to pay for it but for But people years. out here think that the repercussions are a lot less. Yeah, well, guess what? They're not. You know, somebody got their brains beat out today with a stick or something because they got angry with somebody and that somebody had a stick, didn't they? So, yeah, it's weird. No, the repercussions are instant. There are no frivolous words. <clears throat> Do you have any remaining questions, Lawrence? Um, there was a great, uh, there was a great story about walking your dogs, <coughs> and I also want to hear this story on the podcast. Great story about walking your dogs near football when you first arrived in England, uh, and it struck me there was a bit of a culture clash <laughs> when you first arrived, or not even when you first I, arrived. You've been yeah, here for a little while. At that point. No, I was uh, I was brand new here. It was two thousand and five. I was living in St Albans, and um, me and my dog uh, at the time. We're walking along um, the fields by the M25 there where uh, Arsenal had its training grounds. And my dog saw the football being kicked and he went under the hedges and he ran onto the pitch and all this noise and commotion kicked off. So I pulled back this big piece of wire and I climbed under and I started running for my dog. Next thing I know, security's all around me. Hey, hey, what are you doing? So I was like, damn, what's this, like a high school team or a college university? And it turned out to be the Arsenal players. So I was told that they were going to nick me if I didn't become a gunner. So up with the gunners. <laughs> they probably th thought it was one of Arsenal fan TVs. Yeah. Had enough of them. Finally going to get their hands on them. That's well, great though. So you essentially you're an Arsenal fan because your dog went for Thierry Henry. Yeah, so yeah, I know. And I, I, did, I thought it was one of the best stories I had to be recruited because I'm such a passionate American football fan that I, I really started to fall in love with um, English uh, football. And I was so proud of this country when it did so well. And yet I think... It's such a shame that this is the origins of where this sport began and we need the world dominate again. And, and it's too much of a pollution of too many um, players taking the places of developing English players. And there's a pride factor that I feel for England. I, I love this country so much. I want to see it succeed. Mm. I really do, man. I wasn't born here. My grandparents were, like I said, but mm. I, I really do. I, I think that I, I owe England a lot because... It was so different than the hellhole I was raised in in Philadelphia. I'm just grateful to be here every day. Maybe we send you to the England training camp and you can chat to those guys. Dude, I would make them champions because I would I teach would them ever them. Yes, yeah. I would. I tell you what, there's a lot of there's a lot of managers out there stealing a living who can't motivate. So take them in, Elton. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people out there who probably watch this at this point and they're thinking they maybe want to hear more of what you say. Maybe they haven't heard you before or they've just seen you on mm. the Fear of Thirteen and sort of think you've just gone back to normal life. If someone did want to go and hear more of your stuff, maybe see you live or something like that, yeah. where, can, where can those opportunities come from? Uh, my uh, name is uh, Nick Yaris, N-I-C-K-Y-A-R-R-I-S. My website is nickyaris.org. I have... Um, You're on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Facebook as, as well on the professional page. And I'm going to try and go around for the next year, especially, and go back to speaking. So if you would like me to come to your university in England, especially... You can arrange to contact me. I've just uh, agreed to go next week to Leeds University. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And that's what I'm passionate about. I want to, um, my book would be paperback by June. So I really want to go on and promote that. I'm also writing the kindness approach. And what this new book is this, I don't care what you came from. And I don't, I know you didn't go through death row like me. 
But if you can learn how to become a kind and respectful person in your daily life, you will heal your brain and whatever you've gone through. The studies that I'm, I'm reading show that it's helping with PTSD, with dysfunctional families, everything. Believe me, the strongest thing that you can ever do to heal your life is become a truly kind person to yourself. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Nick. It's been no, a I'm really pleasure, grateful, man. Lawrence. I really mean it. You know, one I, of my favorite guests, if not my favorite one. You've thank you, sir. Amazing, and I, I hope to do so well that I could come back and and show you that I meant what I said. That I I, I followed on. Mm. So if you would like, I would like to come back to you in a year from now and show you how I kept my word to you, that I kept going on and trying to earn your respect for giving me your time today. Oh, you'll definitely be coming back. That would make me happier than having you back in a year's time and hearing about your new TV show, et cetera, et cetera, coming yes, through. Yes, sir. That would be a pleasure. Yeah. Hey, Which actor's going to play you is the big question in a year time, right? I'm not allowed to say anything. Oh, yeah. and by the way, to all the listeners who gave us their time today, regardless of where you are in your life and what you're going through, it truly mattered that you allowed me to be alive in your head and your heart today. I'm very grateful for that. And I thank you very, very much. And I wish you all the best. Goodbye. Thanks very much for watching. Don't forget to like the video. Stay subscribed and we'll see you later.